Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Ladies and gentlemen, thrilled to have you here for another epic debate. Want to let you know if it's your first time here at Modern Day Debate, my name is James Coons and I'm your host. And we strive to host debates on science, religion, and politics on a neutral platform. And we want to let you know, folks, no matter what walk of life you are from, we want to say we hope you feel welcome. We're glad you're here. And so with that, what we are going to do for today is we're going to have a flexible, kind of hybrid type format. So we're going to have a 15-minute opening statement from each side, followed by open conversation for about 60 minutes and then 30 minutes of Q&A. So if you happen to have a question, feel free to fire it into the old live chat. And I'm going to introduce our speakers and want to let you know, folks, their links are in the description. So we're going to give them a chance to share about their links, which, as I mentioned, they're in the description waiting for you right now. And so with that, we'll start going from left to right. We're going to start with Matt. And so thrilled to have you back, Matt. Glad you're here. And what can people expect to find at your link? Videos. Next. No, it's a lot of videos. It's these debates, conversations about the debates and some teaching exercises on different subjects on how to better have these conversations, I hope. so. Absolutely. Well, thanks, Matt. And Dr. Josh, glad to have you. It's been a while. Thrilled to have you here. What can people expect to find at your link? Yeah, thank you for having me. Um, anything and everything about the ancient Near East and the Hebrew Bible. Uh, so we have language courses. You can learn Sumerian or Hebrew or Egyptian. Um, and of course we have lots of, uh, videos on different topics about the Bible and how it relates to the ancient Near East. So yeah, anything and everything in the ancient world. You got it. Thanks, Josh. And now Stuart and Cliff, glad to have you back. The real life father-son duo is what can we expect to find from your guys's link? We're thrilled to have you here, both Stuart and Cliff. Hey, James, thanks for having us back on. It's a pleasure, especially with these two guys. And at our channel, you can find, gosh, he's been speaking at college campuses for 40 years now. So videos going back for years and years and years. And basically debates on college campuses throughout the country. And we've broadened it a little bit to discussions with atheists, agnostics, businessmen, businesswomen. So we're trying our hand at everything since it's COVID season and we're quarantined so we don't get bored, you know. So that's about the extent of it. You got it. Thanks, Stuart. And Cliff, good to see you again as well. Linked below in the description as well, folks. How are you? How have you been? Very well, James. Thanks for having us. Good to see you, Josh and Matt. My pleasure. And so with that, very excited. What we'll do is the affirmative will be going first. And since the topic is whether or not biblical... whether or not biblical slavery is moral, we will have Cliff and Stuart going first. And so thank you, gentlemen. The floor is all yours. James, thanks you so much for having us. Slavery is evil. We're not here to defend slavery. We are also convinced that the Bible does not condone slavery. Yes, it gives instructions regarding slavery. Yes, it gives regulations regarding slavery but it does not condone slavery. Now, why is this an issue that we should be talking about tonight? 
because I know certain people who say the reason that I cannot believe in Jesus Christ is because slavery is referred to and is talked about in the Bible. And I think that it's even condoned in the Bible. So the three points I want us to make first off the bat. First of all, how do you interpret the Bible? Second of all, why is slavery wrong? And thirdly, the Bible lays the foundation for slavery being wrong. Is there a better foundation than the Bible for slavery being evil and wrong? First of all, interpretation. I would like you all to read Matthew chapter 19. The Pharisees come up to Jesus and they say, hey, Jesus, can a man divorce his wife for any and every reason? And Jesus says, you know what was written in the beginning, that God created the male and female and said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then the Pharisees ask a fascinating question. They say, well, if this is true, then why did Moses permit men to give their wives a certificate of divorce and usher them out? And Jesus responds, this was not the way God meant it from the beginning. Instead, this was due to the hardness of your hearts. Divorce, polygamy, slavery, government that often does evil are all talked about in the Bible. The Bible does not condone divorce. It doesn't say that it's good. But in light of the tragedies in this world, in light of the sinfulness of the human heart, unfortunately, divorce is permissible at times. But it's not God's ideal. Slavery is never once God's ideal due to the sinfulness of the human heart. Yes, slavery has occurred since the beginning of civilization. No question about it. Secondly, in interpretation, remember, the Bible gives us instruction about slavery, not approval of slavery. The Bible gives us regulation of slavery, not endorsement of it. If I say to you, go and vote at the next election, I am not saying that I approve of democracy. I'm not saying that democracy is the best form of government. I'm simply saying, go and vote in the next election. If I say to a soldier, soldier, follow orders, that does not reveal my complete perspective on war or the war that the soldier's involved in. It's simply a statement, follow orders, soldier. Now, there are a lot of instructions in the Bible about slavery. Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 15 and 16 communicate crystal clearly that it is unlawful for runaway slaves to be returned. In other words, those of you who have slaves, you better take good care of your slaves because if they run away, it's against the law to return them. In Exodus 21, 16, we read that if you kidnap and sell a person or keep that person who you've kidnapped, you will be punished by death. Obviously, you don't want to be punished by death. Obviously, therefore, you don't want to kidnap a person and either sell them to someone as a slave, give them to a person as a slave, or keep them. Then when you look at slavery more carefully in the Old Testament, you begin to realize that the overwhelming majority of the discussion about slavery in the Old Testament is about slaves of war. In Leviticus chapter 18, verses 21 and 24, we read, that God judges those people who have given their children up to the fires of Malak. In other words, the question is, does God have the moral right in our minds to judge civilizations that commit crimes against humanity by burning their children to death? I would say yes. That is morally responsible on God's part of the judge, as the judge of the universe. Secondly, there is slavery due to severe debt accumulation. That's recorded in Le Leviticus chapter 25, verses 47 to 49. 
But remember, in neither situation, either as prisoners of war or as a result of severe debt accumulation, is slavery the ideal. Never, ever, ever. Now, before we get too high on our own morality in our country, we have to acknowledge that we have slaves in the United States today right now. They are prisoners. I've done a fair amount of work in prisons, and these people who I meet have no possessions, very minimal amount of clothing. They are in very small cells, and it's a type of slavery. So we feel that to enslave someone in a prison is okay. And I would argue, yes, I understand that if someone has done moral evil on a large scale, that for them to lose their freedom is appropriate. Well, those slaves of war that were slaves in Israel were slaves because they were part of the prisoner of war. Instead, in fact, they had done evil and God was choosing to judge them for that evil. Okay, the next question is why is slavery wrong? Slavery is wrong for seven reasons. First of all, God has created us in his image, which means we were created to reflect the character of God. Secondly, the fall. Genesis chapter three, human rebellion against God. That is why we have slavery. And there's a very clear communication that slavery, dehumanizing a person in any way, is wrong. Jesus and the Old Testament communicate, God created us to love your neighbor as yourself. Slavery is obviously a violation of love your neighbor as yourself. Thirdly, the second greatest miracle in the Old Testament is the Exodus, where God delivers the Hebrew slaves out of the slavery of Egypt. Fourthly, in the Gospels, we read that Jesus Christ died for the sins of everybody. John records that very clearly. So Christ died for everybody's sins, for all. Fifthly, in the church, in the first century, read in Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. Sixthly, in heaven, we read in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, that there will be people of every tribe, language, and nation. So heaven is going to be populated with all types of people. In other words, God has a price tag on our head, and that price tag is the death of his only son, Jesus Christ. And Christ wants everybody, God wants everybody to go to heaven. And then seventhly, for anybody to argue that the Bible is pro-slavery, condones slavery, they obviously haven't written, read the book of Philemon. Philemon is Paul's small, short letter to a slave owner, Philemon. And Paul pleads with Philemon to accept Onesimus back no longer as a slave, but as a brother in Christ. So why is slavery wrong? Because we're created in the image of God. We've all fallen and sin is real. And unfortunately, slavery has been a part of the history of civilization. Slavery is wrong because of the exodus out of Egypt. Slavery is wrong because Christ died for the sins of the whole world. Slavery is wrong because in the church of Jesus Christ, there is neither slave nor free. Slavery is wrong because in heaven, they're going to be people from every nation. God does not play favorites. God does not show partiality. And then seventhly, slavery is wrong, according to the scriptures, because the main point of the book of Philemon is Philemon, a slave owner, is being told by Paul. Paul's pleading with Philemon, please accept your runaway slave, Onesimus, back, no longer as a slave, but as a brother in Christ. In other words, love on the guy. Love him. He's your brother. Third point is, the final point, the Bible lays the foundation for slavery being wrong. We've just gone over those seven points. Is there a better foundation? Well, if you look at evolutionary development, no, that doesn't give an adequate foundation for slavery being wrong. 
I mean, if evolutionary development is the basis of right and wrong, is slavery being wrong? Slavery at times benefits certain group, people groups. What about social contract? Is that the basis for slavery being wrong? No. If you're in a gang and the gang says, in order for you to join our group, you have to murder somebody. It doesn't make it good just because you have a social contract. Thirdly, self-interest. Is self-interest really the basis of slavery being wrong? Because I don't want to be a slave. Hardly. Obviously, self-interest has motivated too many people to have slaves. What about survival of the fittest? No, that's a morality based on power. And yes, it might be nice to believe in survival of the fittest as the basis of your ethics if you're in power. But once you become weak, all of a sudden you begin to realize the triviality of that as a basis of slavery or anything else being wrong. What about cultural conditioning? Well, cultural conditioning is a horrible basis for slavery being wrong. Why? Because if I grew up in a culture that teaches me that slavery is right, then my cultural conditioning tells me that slavery is right. That's hollow. Well, what about the sixth point, the dignity of people? That's why things are right and wrong. Really? Well, why are people valuable? Why is there such a thing as human dignity? Because we're created the image of God, because we're created for a purpose. That's why all human beings have equal value. And seventhly, some people say, well, there's an innate principle of the universe. And this innate principle of the universe says that justice is real. You know, it's kind of like a mathematical principle, really. Guys, I never experienced guilt because I violated a principle. I experienced guilt because I violated a person, not a principle. It is far more reasonable as I look at my experience of morality, of conscience, of guilt, to understand that right and wrong are defined by a personal being who created persons, human beings in his image. And when I violate a human being by oppressing them in slavery, that is absolutely evil. So I'm afraid there is no better foundation for slavery being wrong than the biblical revelation that we're created in the image of God. There's been a fall and evil is very real. God delivered those Hebrew slaves out of slavery in Egypt. Christ bled and died on a cross for the sins of everybody, slave and free. We all are valuable to him. In the church of Jesus Christ, right in the first century, there's neither slave nor free, male nor female. We're all one in Christ. And in heaven, there will be people from every tribe, language, people, and nation. And the point of the whole point of the book of Philemon in the New Testament is, please, Philemon, Paul pleads, accept Onesimus back. No longer as a slave, no longer as a running race slave, but as a brother in Christ. For anyone to say that the Bible condones slavery in light of that evidence is very, very sad. Frederick Douglass, the runaway slave turned abolitionist, intellectual, had a, a pretty amazing experience with a white minister, actually, who led him to Christ through this understanding of sin. And we hear that and we think, what, who would ever want to come to know Christ through a comp just a comprehension of sin? I certainly wouldn't. I wouldn't want to start there. I would want that to come later on, possibly. But he, he's, he retains that understanding of what sin really is. And he looks at books like Romans, for example, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And he takes that in and says, I am a sinner. I'm broken. My slave masters were certainly broken. But what Jesus Christ did on the cross, he said, because all of humanity is broken, they all need saving. And because of that, we can universally say that everybody has a stain. And that something, there needs to be some answer to removing that stain. 
And so Frederick Douglass went on and said, my burdens were eventually completely taken off my shoulders because I started to understand that God was there for me in a way that was so tangible because of the cross, Jesus Christ, as this slave figure dying on it for me. I think that's pretty powerful. For me, if I'm going to come at this issue, especially in understanding what African-Americans have been through, I want to look at look at it through their lens predominantly. And I love to see that there are a few books coming out right now written by black intellectuals on racism and slave issues specifically. And so that's kind of where I start. Secondly, I go to passages like, like I mean, Abraham and Sarah, their big mess up and, and not being patient and waiting on God's call and his promise for a, a child eventually to be Isaac. And so he sleeps with his slave girl, Hagar, everything goes wrong. So obviously with slavery and with polygamy, so many issues in the Old Testament, you have description, not prescription. We have that over and over again. And I think that obviously is true with much of the texts on slavery as well. And so God comes and clearly seeks out, not Abraham, obviously at different times, Abraham, but in this certain scenario, it's not Abraham, it's not Sarah, it's Hagar when she's on the run, when she's finally pushed out in what, Genesis 21, and she's fleeing. And in Genesis 16, 13, she's actually the first one in the entire Bible to name God. So he gives her this opportunity as a little slave girl to actually name him. So a tremendous, obvious, obviously privilege, as well as this type of, it was known back then to actually name a God. I mean, Jews don't even name him today, obviously, with Yahweh. They, they leave letters out. That was huge. And that's a little slave girl. And so God obviously empathizes. And then ultimately we see the treatment of the oppressed people groups in different ways that are powerful. And even in the Old Testament, we see what happens with Joseph, for example. And then later on, the, the condemning as well as Exodus chapter one, where God clearly reminds the Israelites over and over again, after coming out of captivity, remember, remember you were once slaves. So how are you going to treat slaves of different nations and your own slaves? One minute. And then finally, New Testament speaks to me much louder than, than old. We can go over property, we can go over rape and all these issues. I know I'm sure Josh will have a lot of definitions that, that, that will be helpful. But for me, you have past, I mean, we have manuscripts, for example, from the second century, where you have Trajan and Pliny the Younger writing back and forth. And they're trying to find ways to kill, persecute Christians. And they go and they actually take two slaves who are both deaconesses, leaders, those are the equivalent of pastors in the church, start torturing them in order to get information out of them. That's powerful to see that slaves were actually also females, leaders in the church. Thank you very much. We will kick it over to Matt and Dr. Josh. Also, want to say I forgot to mention at the very start, folks, we are thrilled. If it's your first time here, consider hitting that subscribe button as we have many more juicy debates to come. For example, you'll see at the bottom right of your screen, we are thrilled that Pastor Doug Wilson, who co-starred with Christopher Hitchens in the epic documentary collision he will be debating the atheist professor dr ben burgess that's coming up next month so if you want a reminder hit that subscribe button now and with that we'll kick it over to matt and dr josh thanks so much the floor is all yours so thanks so much uh and happy to be here and happy to see cliff again after so many years uh good to talk to stuart recently but um i think most people uh, watching this are probably familiar with 
things that I've said about slavery over the years. And I'm sure I'll have plenty to say in a minute, but I wanted to give Josh the opportunity to start us off as I don't think as many people have heard his take on it. And I'll chime in afterward and then we'll talk. So go ahead, Josh, the floor is all yours. Thank you, Matt. All right. Well, I'm boring and I scripted mine. So here we go. Slavery is a term that often causes a certain amount of justifiable angst when discussed. Recent history here in the United States has shown us that the practice of slavery should remain only a part of our past. Given what we know about slavery and its terrible consequences, it can be rather surprising to open a sacred text like the Bible and read about slavery, not only in its narrative portions, but also in its legal sections. How could a divinely inspired document contain laws that endorse a practice that we now know to be immoral? For some believers, these laws are part of an outdated system that has been superseded by the teachings of Jesus and the writers of the New Testament. Others have concluded that the Old Testament text was not divinely inspired and thus poses no problem for the believer. Still others seek to compare the laws in the Old Testament to what was practiced in other ancient societies, arguing that the Bible is progressive or revolutionary in its laws. Finally, some argue that the word slavery should not be used at all, as we are simply applying a modern meaning to an ancient term. What are we to make of all of this? What was slavery like as described in the Old Testament? Were there laws endorsing debt and chattel slavery? Were they as immoral as we think? How do they compare to the laws from other ancient Near Eastern societies? To begin to answer these questions, we should first define our terms. What is slavery? Although the terms slave and slavery have nuanced meanings in a variety of contexts, in the context of this discussion, we can be a bit more precise. For example, Jean Haas defines slavery in the Pentateuch as, quote, a condition in which a person is deprived of freedom, at least for a period of time, by being in subjugation to a master in order that the master may benefit from the labor of the slave, end quote. Don DeMaio defines slavery in this way, quote, Slavery is the institution whereby one person can hold ownership rights over another, end quote. Finally, Raymond Westbrook writes, quote, A slave was therefore a person to whom the law of property applied rather than family or contract law. Even this definition is not wholly exclusive, he says, since family law and contract law occasionally intruded upon the rules of ownership. Furthermore, the relationship between master and slave was subject to legal restrictions based on the humanity of the slave and, and the concerns of social justice, end quote. Perhaps a good working definition for this discussion might be a condition in which an individual or rights to their labor is owned by another, either temporarily or permanently. The owner controls and benefits from the actions and activities of the owned individual. Having set our definitions, we now turn to a very broad overview of what the legal sections of the Pentateuch say about slavery. Exodus 21, 2 through 6 contains laws concerning a male Israelite dead slave. He is able to be kept for six years and released in the seventh. Stipulations are in place concerning his wife and children, which depend upon whether he came into slavery married or was given a wife by his master. Verses 7 through 11, which begin, if a man sells his daughter as a slave, concern the female slave who is sold by her father into either concubinage or marriage. Verses 20 to 21 describe the punishment that is to follow if a master beats his slave to death, male or female, 
but the lack of punishment should the slave survive a day or two. Quote, anyone who beats their male or female slave with a rod must be punished if the slave dies as a direct result. But they are not to be punished if the slave recovers after a day or two, since the slave is their property, end quote. Here we see the type of moderate corporal punishment. Sorry, here we see that a type of corporal punishment was not only expected, but encouraged in the Proverbs, along with the legal rationale that differs little from what we see in the antebellum South. Verses 26 through 27 established that a slave is not due to lex talionis, should his eye or tooth be destroyed, but is to be released from slavery instead. Finally, in verses 28 to 32, if a slave is gored by a known unruly ox, the master is to pay 30 shackles of silver to the owner of the slave. Deuteronomy 15 develops at least some aspects of the laws of the covenant code, most notably the requirement to provide the Israelite slave with material provisions following his six-year term of service, in order that he might not so easily fall back into debt slavery. However, we must remember that, as in Exodus 21, this refers only to Israelite debt slaves. Foreign slaves are dealt with specifically in Leviticus 25, the latest of the three legal sections, which develops the laws concerning the Israelite slave even further. The Israelite who becomes so poor as to sell himself to another Israelite must not be treated as a slave, but as a hired worker. Where were the Israelites to obtain their slaves? From the nations that surround them and from tenant farmers residing in the land of Israel. Verses 44 to 46 read, Your male and female slaves are to come from the nations around you. From them you may buy slaves. You may also buy some of the temporary residents living among you and members of their clans born in your country, and they will become your property. You can bequeath them to your children as inherited property and can make them slaves for life, but you must not rule over your fellow Israelites ruthlessly. These foreigners can be treated as slaves, kept as property in perpetuity, and passed on as inheritance to their children. The topic of slavery is one that justifiably makes us uncomfortable, yet it comes up time and again in discussions about morality and the God of the Bible. What we have outlined above represents the consensus view among scholars in the field, and accords well, as we will see, with what these texts say and what they are doing in their respective contexts. J.P.M. Vanderplug wrote, It has been said very often that slavery in Israel or in the Near East as a whole should not be put in line with classical Greek or Roman slavery. Slaves were not too numerous, and their position was very often that of unfree house servants. If they had good masters, they were maintained by them and were in a position very often preferable to free but poor people. But in spite of this consideration, he says, slavery was an evil. Although we know that the slavery that is described in the legal texts of the Old Testament differs little from what we see in the laws of other ancient Near Eastern societies, let us assume for a moment that they were different. Let's assume that the slavery in the Bible was only debt servitude, that all people were to be released after a period of time, that runaway slaves were not allowed to be returned, and slaves were not allowed to be beaten by their masters. It would still be slavery, people owning people even if only for a period of time. How could this practice, which has been openly condemned in modern society, be justified as moral in any way? It would seem that the only defense would be to argue that a perfectly moral God endorsed its practice. Thus, it was moral because God declared it so. 
but this amounts, it seems, to little more than a post hoc rationalization that ostensibly must be taken simply by faith and appears to fall into the category of claims made without evidence that can be dismissed without evidence. I'm sorry, I did realize that was that was the end of it because I was, wasn't following along. So let me let me continue with a couple of things um, by means of what I'd already written down and what I'm potentially concerned about, because it surprises me that I could say, hey, let's have a debate about whether or not biblical slavery is moral. And somebody says yes. Um, and so it confused me right off the bat. And what I anticipated is pretty much what we got, because the case that's been made essentially is that. Um, well, of course, slavery is awful, but that's not what the Bible sanctions. The problem is slavery isn't a job. You can't quit it. It's not a debt recovery plan. It doesn't deprive you of, of freedom so that, you know, I can, I can pay off the person I owe by working for someone else. By tying my life and my freedom to the person I owe is unjust. It is expressly in the Bible, the owning of another person is property. They are equivalent to money. They can be inherited. They can be beaten, traded, and sold. Their life is not their own. Their autonomy is not respected. There is nothing about equality. The Bible is racist and misogynistic, and that shouldn't come as a surprise to anybody because people in the Bible are not equal. Men aren't equal to women. We have worked as, as a civilization to get rid of slavery, and in, including in its various forms where people don't even want to acknowledge that it could be uh, roughly like slavery, whether it's indentured servitude and debtor's prison. We've come up with better ways to do all this, not the least of which is how we treat prisoners of war. And by the way, there's a huge amount of a, a, a huge assumption being made that the Israelites, who think that their God was sending them on a mission to run around slaughtering everybody and keeping all of the young virgins for themselves, um, that, that they were they were in the in the right. And so all of these prisoners of war who become their slaves, well, that's what they deserve for standing up against God. Everything about this, and it's not a surprise, and I'm not going to fault them for it, everything about this comes down to God says it's okay. So what's in the Bible supposedly isn't really slavery, and anyone who claims it is is sad, according to Cliff. But what's sad, truly, is cherry-picking. What's sad is talking about God being nice to the little slave girl, Hagar, when the truth is, the angel that was sent to Hagar sent her back to the person who was cruel to her. And I've said for many years that the only thing that God God or anyone should ever say to a slave uh, that has escaped or, or run away is good, and you should try to escape, and you should try to free as many people as you want. Because this is about individuals owning other individuals. It's not a proper uh, implementation of, of, of debt or prisoner of war or anything. Ah, but biblical slavery isn't like antebellum slavery. Yes, it is. Not in every regard. It's not necessarily the same people acquired the same way, but in many ways that, that matter. You, you're, according to the Bible, you're to buy slaves from the heathen that surround you. They're property. You pass them on. I'm shocked in some ways that there's even a debate here, but it's not surprising because what we've heard now is instead of, yes, biblical slavery is moral, what they basically argued is, well, what you want to call slavery in the Bible isn't really slavery and it's moral. And the problem is, is that the Bible advocates for owning people. And it's not even remotely the most or, or, or one of the only uh, immoral positions there. And so what's left? Oh, well, and I, I wrote this down before we started. It seems the only thing that uh, remains is to suggest that, well, 
atheists don't have a moral foundation and therefore don't have any grounds to say it's immoral, which is a completely dishonest dodge. It doesn't matter if I have a moral foundation or not. I do, by the way. Um, it doesn't matter whether anybody else agrees with my moral foundation. Josh and I could just sit here and say, you know what? We sat around. We thought about it today. We're really opposed to this slavery thing. No, not just the antebellum slavery. We are really opposed to the slavery as it's described in the Bible, that one person can own another person's property, that they can beat them, etc. Um, now, what's sad is when you look at Philemon and try to suggest that this is somehow anti-slavery. Because in reality, we have rules, and they become the more specific rules override the general rules in a limited scope. That's the way this works. And Paul isn't saying anything at all about slavery or the implementation of slavery. He's not making a statement against slavery. He's speaking up for a friend of his that he wants to be treated better, who happens to also be a slave. There's not a word there from Paul that is slavery is immoral. By the way, it wouldn't matter if there was a word there from Paul because it wouldn't trump within Christendom the word of Jesus and God. And it wouldn't trump all of the other times throughout the Bible where in Ephesians, servants obey your masters, even with fear and trembling and kindness in your heart, servants obey your masters in all things in Colossians 3 and 1 Peter 2.18 and Titus 2 and all these other passages that suggest, hey, slaves obey your masters, even the cruel ones, because it's more important for you to be there as a slave, as a representative of God to a cruel master than it is for you to be free, which I also hold as immoral. Now, you can complain all day long. Well, you don't have a good moral foundation or you, don't, you can't, haven't given us a moral foundation, but this wasn't a debate, a debate broadly just about morality. Cliff walked in agreeing right off the bat, slavery is grossly immoral. And the only question left is, does the, what does what the Bible describes count as slavery? But you can set the word aside and say, is what the Bible is advocating moral? And I hold that under all of our views, Beating people, owning people, passing them on as property is not moral. And I think what's sad is anybody who would try to suggest it is. And I don't think either one of them would say that that's moral. So get them to answer for what's actually in Exodus 21 about how to treat your slaves. Because if we're going to nitpick about whether the Bible condones, I don't think I've ever said that there's any reason to think that slavery was God's ideal. But if God can tell us not to eat shellfish and not to wear mixed fabrics and not to lie and not to kill people and tell us that women aren't equal to men, then I think he could have said, hey, thou shalt not own people as property and beat them. And it's an absolute failing that after that was in the Bible all that time, that when Jesus shows up, and when the New Testament's written, that's never, ever corrected. It would be really simple. Hey, that stuff you guys thought about slavery, you, you got it wrong. We're here to fix it. Doesn't happen. Gotcha. Thank you very much from Matt and Dr. Josh for their openings. We will go into the open conversation, which I think is going to go well, folks. I know it's a fiery topic, but I think it's going to be a civil and friendly conversation despite it all. So with that, we'll kick it over to our guests. Thanks very much, guys, for being here. And want to remind you, folks, they're linked in the description. So if you want to hear or read more, you certainly can. Floor is all yours, guys. And now we don't know who's going to start. There's four of us here, and all God of us are waiting. Uh, I, so I, I have a quick, potentially quick question for, for Cliff, because you listed essentially seven things, although there may have been eight. I had a difficult time with the numbering, where it's, hey, we're all made in the image of God, which obviously I don't agree with, so it can't be a foundation for both of us. I, I would hope that if we were going to talk about what's moral, we could start with some foundation that we agree on, like 
humanity. Whether you think people are dignified because it, it, uh, God says so, or I think they're dignified because of uh, that this is what leads to a better world demonstrably, at least we both think that dignity and individual autonomy are, are justified. So whether we're made in God's image doesn't matter. The fall doesn't matter. Love your neighbor doesn't matter because these are instructions from God, the same person that is okay with you owning your, your neighbors, as long as you buy them from the heathen that surround you. Um, you had God delivers um, the Hebrews from slavery, but that's not in opposition to slavery. That's just God preferring the Hebrews, which is what he did. They're, they're preferred. There were already different rules for Hebrew slaves than there were for the Gentiles. The passage in Galatians that there's neither slave nor free, that's about how God views people with regard to souls in an afterlife. It has nothing to do with whether God's okay with them being enslaved. There's no explicit word against slavery, that heaven will be populated by all. Um, I don't see how any of this is an argument against slavery. All it does is set up a situation where the Bible seems to say, hey, slavery's okay under these prescriptions. And then there are other passages that people say, well, you know, Paul didn't want his slave. I didn't want his friend to be a slave. How does that serve as a foundation for anyone other than a Bible-believing Christian? Stuart? Cliff? <laughs> All righty. It's very, very simple. Do all people have equal dignity? Not if there is no God and if evolution tells the whole story, because we are, have evolved to different levels of the evolutionary cycle. If there is no God, eugenics makes total sense. Get the weaker people out of the way, get handicapped people out of the way, get people who are just handicapped in whatever way, get them out of the way because they are a drain on the limited natural resources that we have. So what the scriptures does is say baloney. All human beings, regardless of their IQ, regardless of their talents or lack thereof, have equal value because they all are created by God to reflect the character of God in the way they live loving lives, good lives. Slavery is wrong because slavery is dehumanizing a person who has innate intrinsic value. Secondly, slavery is wrong because it's a classic example of sin, of basically saying, God, get out of the way. I'm going to define right and wrong. So, Matt, it's great if you want to say slavery is wrong. I happen to agree with you. The Bible obviously agrees with you. But remember, Matt, if there is no God, it's just a personal opinion. It's just a prejudice. It's just a bias that Matt Dillahante has. Guess what? I'm convinced that slavery is wrong, not because I'm an educated white guy who thinks that slavery is wrong. And I've progressed to this level on the evolutionary ladder that makes me superior to others. No, the Bible says slavery is wrong because all human beings have equal value and dignity. And so, Christ died for all of us. And when it comes, Matt, to you saying, oh, God says all that Israel does is right. Come on, Matt, read the Hebrew prophets. You know very well, Matt, that God used first the Assyrians and then the Babylonians to judge the Israelites for their sacrificing babies, for their immorality. So please don't give me this line that Israel is God's pets. If that was true, then why did he sweep all the Israelites into captivity, first at the hands of the Assyrians and then at the hands of the Babylonians? Well, first of all, this is not remotely an answer to the question that I asked. I, the question I asked is... Get, given the, all the foundations that you provide, how does that apply to someone who does not, who is not a, a Christian, who does not believe that the Bible is true? So, so basically, your entire case for biblical slavery being moral is a particular interpretation on your part of the Bible. 
Now, we may or may not agree on the interpretation, but all I was asking was, if there's someone who does not agree with the Bible, either your version or somebody else's version, how is that in any way a demonstration that it's wrong? You can disagree with whatever you want to. I could disagree with whatever I want to. The question is, if you're going to put yourself in a position of judging the Bible and the Bible's morality, then you better have a pretty good explanation of what's the basis of the morality that you're using to judge the Bible's morality. No, see, that's, And I have not heard that from you. So first of all, that's still not an answer to my question. And second of all, nobody has to have a better explanation than God said so in order to object to the things that you say God said, because I have no evidence that a God said anything. All right, fine, Matt. It's real simple. You know, I often hear people say, God says it, I believe it, that settles it. You know, there's an alternative, Matt, to that line of thinking. Yes, and there's the God says it, that I settles said it. it. I believe it, that settles it. Oh, that's not the alternative. My point is, that's the heart of sin. The heart of sin is me playing God, me saying, God, my opinion is more correct, more moral, more right than your opinion. I get and that. You can go that path. I go on that path at times myself. But let's be real honest, the game that we're playing. I, I, I'm trying to be real honest, the game we're playing. I keep asking a question that you don't answer. How is this binding on anybody who is not a Bible-believing Christian? Obviously, I would think you'd be able to answer that question yourself. It's not. I would like for you to answer. Not, Why is it I have to ask three anybody. times, Cliff? If, if you're an atheist, you're not going to accept that the Bible speaks the truth, and so you're going to live your own life. Great. And God has given you the gift of freedom. Great. But if there is a God, if you're wrong that there is no God, if indeed in reality there is a God who ultimately will judge us, then you're in a real jam, Matt. Because I'm not with regard to sleep. And have to I'm answer him. But if there is no God, Matt, when I die, I become fertilizer. And when you die, you become fertilizer. And that's it. So that's yes. obviously the way it is, Matt. And, and so if there because, is no God, we all die and we're fertilizer. So you're not going to have to answer to God. Neither am I. But I if there it. is a God, then you're going to have to answer to God for the decisions you made in the way you treated people. So am and, I. And, and, I, and while I understand that, I'm the, the subject of this debate was, is biblical slavery moral? Now, we're going to disagree on foundations of morality, but if your argument is what the Bible says is good and correct because it comes from God, and Matt's just wrong that it's not slavery. I never like, said that once, so you put those words in my I, mouth. I'm, hang never on. Never once did I say the Bible speaks the truth because it comes from the mouth of God. I, I know you're you did a not. a great job attacking a straw man, Matt, but I never once Cliff, said that. Cliff, can you calm down? Can you calm down and start being I, accurate with what I say. I, I did not did say, I say it. Cliff, I did not say that you said that. I'm I'm sorry that this that you're not following this. If you make the case that what if the Bible- If you make the case, you're referring to me. Are okay, you going to interrupt so, me every time? No, go ahead. If you make the case, as you did, that what the Bible sanctions is not slavery in the view that we hold. Are you, are you in agreement with me that that was your case? That what we call slavery, you don't think is slavery? I never made that case once. You totally misunderstood. Totally. Okay. I, fine. I started off by saying slavery is evil. Is is and then is I the, continued the to evil, say, and Cliff? the Bible never condones slavery. The, okay. How dare you, sir? You just said the Bible never condones slavery. Right. It does, in fact, support slavery in the notion that slavery is permissive, permissible under certain guidelines. Correct. Well, hold on. Okay, since you're taking us directly back to the topic, you guys have been on topic, but it's been broad, let's just say. Maybe more pointedly to this very, to the top, let's, let's rein it in a little bit. Josh, if I could ask you, and Matt, you answer it too. 
I've heard you state before, and I'm, I'm just asking to see if you change. It sounded like you changed it a little bit here in your intro than when I heard you say it on one of your recent videos that you said, I mean, in our current context today, here in the U.S., where we are today, and where the laws are today in regards to something like slavery or, or any evil, then looking at the Old Testament, clearly the laws back then were immoral. But if we were living back then, we wouldn't say that that was immoral. Do you still hold to that statement? or Is this for Josh? That? Yeah, Sorry, Josh. Just, so that, Josh. Just, just so that I steal man your question. So you, you're saying, would people in the ancient Near East and the authors of the Hebrew Bible would they have said slavery is immoral? Well, you specifically, if you were living back then, knowing yeah. what you do know now, I don't think I understand versus your question. now looking back and saying, okay, if you, clearly, if, we can if you all lived agree. in, so, so you're asking, are you asking Josh, if Josh lived back in Exodus times with the knowledge that he has now, would he still think slavery was immoral? Is that their, is that your question? Just being that, I mean, don't don't focus too much on the knowledge now. Just just focus on back then. Was it immoral to them? If you were back then, speaking, yeah, you yourself. This is just what I heard you say, and maybe you changed your your view on it, or maybe I just completely misheard it. But I, I thought I heard it pretty right, clear. Right. So let, let's let's yeah. Let me answer the question by taking yeah. it to something else. So. Um, in Deuteronomy 22, uh, a rapist is uh, just to marry, is, has the option of marrying, um, depending on the circumstance, um, is, is going to marry the person that he raped, right? Um, that's immoral, right? Uh, Deuteronomy 21 talks about a captive woman who is a slave, who is taken as a slave because she was beautiful, right? That's non-consensual, uh, that's rape, right? By modern standards, by our terms, what we would say is rape. Right, right. Those two things are rape. Would they have said, if you went back in time and said, hey, is, is this thing that you're doing with this captive woman, is that immoral? They would say no. Mm -hmm. Does that answer the question? So if we were back then, it wouldn't have been immoral. But today, looking back with what we know, it's immoral. I'm sorry, I'm confused because it sounds like what you're suggesting is that morality is situational. Could be. I mean, it depends. Okay. I, I'm fine with situational morality. My my position is that slavery was always immoral. It's just that people didn't recognize it or didn't care. And we have learned since then, just as there were many other things that were immoral that people didn't recognize or didn't care about. And we have learned since then. And in fact, morality is situational, but our understanding of morality is uh, something that grows and learns. I have a better understanding of what right and wrong is now than I did when I was five or when I did when I was 25. Uh, and while there are things that I understood at 25 that I still understand now, I didn't care as much about them at 25 uh, as I did about, you know, perhaps having a good time and other things. Uh, but if we're to say, with regard to slavery, if you were to suggest that it was in fact moral, like once upon a time, God was okay with slavery, and now God is not okay with slavery. Now you have to take on the job of pointing out, is God unchanging? Is morality unchanging? Why would God change his mind? And why would the God who can tell me not to wear mixed fabrics and don't eat shellfish not also be able to tell me don't own people as property? Mm -hmm. But so the question is not so much, what does God think? It's more so, do we think this is immoral and moral? And obviously the God question is going to play into it mm -hmm. but i've just heard 
J- Josh, so I, I'm still, yeah, no, you, you gave up, you gave some of the answer, but I'm still trying to get to, are you, are you going fully to the side of this is fully immoral in every situation, every case, these passages like Deuteronomy 22, 21, Exodus, you name it, any of these, or are you saying it kind of depends and whether that's situational morality and ethics, where, where do you stand on that? Are you, are you, I mean, certainly I'm not an ethicist, right? Um, yeah. So what I say is, you know, it's not my area of specialization. I would say that uh, sex without consent is immoral, right? And that's what we see in Deuteronomy 22 and Deuteronomy 21. Um, so, I mean, I don't know what it means by like totally wrong or absolutely. I don't know, remember the word you said exactly. Well, so, but, so you, yeah, you talked about rape being wrong. But back then, wouldn't you say... I mean, the Hebrews were at least in many ways doing things slightly better than the surrounding nations and at least called to in terms of you can't just rape somebody. But if you do rape them, you do have to bring them in. There's purity rights, uh, you know, shaving of the head. We we hear that. And first off, we think, okay, that's sexist. But if you look into shaving, the protection of eventually marriage takes a full month before and then you're entering in. So, again, I've I've heard you say, but maybe maybe I just and reading this wrong or, or heard you wrong, both of those things, when it comes to, I don't think you would jump fully, but I don't want to put words in your mouth fully to the extreme that Matt does in terms of clearly immoral. And at the same time, simply, you know, the laws that we're talking about that are coming out of scripture, whether it be Deuteronomical, you know, Moses's laws, these commandments, clearly there is something that is going on with preservation, et cetera. It's a two things. One, uh, the 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 Israelites and the legal system that is seen in the Pentateuch is very similar to, almost indistinguishable from, in many ways, uh, what you see in the ancient Near Eastern law codes. And in some places, for example, with slavery, you know, something like the laws of Hammurabi are actually a little bit better, right, than what you see in the in the biblical mm-hmm. text. So there's release after three years for a debt slave uh, in the laws of Hammurabi, as opposed to uh, as opposed to six. For the Israelite. But I mean, on par, you can read somebody like Raymond Westbrook, and he's going to make the argument that there's sort of an international um, legal tradition that stands behind this. Uh, and that's that's sort of consensus scholarship, right? That there's there's really not a big distinction. Now, the, the distinction that you will see from a humane standpoint, you'll see in the book of Deuteronomy, but it's only with respect to the Israelites. So that's, you know, that's a caveat that I want to make. Um, so you see something in like Deuteronomy 15, where the master is supposed to not just set the slave free as it was in Exodus 21, but that passage has been developed where he's supposed to lavishly, the word there is to like, it's, it's an idiomatic thing, put a necklace on, right? It's to, or, you know, to, to, to lay on them lavishly all these goods and possessions and things so that they don't fall back, but that's Israelites. So, yeah, I mean, so I don't remember what the second thing that you said was, but uh, that is don't, I, I would, I would say it would be a bad thing to say or an incorrect thing to say the Israelites are very progressive, right? Or they're, mm-hmm. they're, they're ahead of their time or they're so much better than the surrounding nations. Yeah, anyway, sorry. But, but what we I'm, have in the Pentateuch, is it necessarily legislative? Is it prescriptive? I mean, there certainly doesn't seem to be a consensus on it because you have like Christine Hayes, for example, says the law was not prescriptive until beyond the Ezra Nehemiah time or, or Finkelstein talks about... So, royal apologia 
and testaments or propaganda pieces to exalt the king. Yeah. So I, let me just because uh, I, I know I know the, the debate. So um, we have to be really careful here because I, I hear a lot of people sort of stepping in and out hermeneutically. Mm -hmm. Right. So if you're going to take the Pentateuch, for example, as a divinely inspired document, mm -hmm. um, and when the text says, you know, God commands the people X, the narrative is describing God commanding, prescribing, right? That's what the narrative is, is, is doing. Um, now, what you're describing, Christine Hayes, Raymond Westbrook, Finkelstein, these people are looking at this and saying, and not just, certainly not just based on the Hebrew Bible, they're looking at all the older law codes, codes, right? They're not codes. The, you know, the laws of Hammurabi, the laws of Bornam, the laws of Eshnun, Lipid Ishtar, you know, the Middle Assyrian laws. All of these are royal propaganda pieces in a sense, right? So how you use them, looking at, without getting too far into this, looking at them as legislative or normative, that's not what they were. The, the problem is, from a hermeneutical standpoint, from an interpretive standpoint, you can't have your cake and eat it too. So you're either going to say this is not a divinely inspired document that is actually God commanding things, and that it's 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 actually just a royal propaganda piece or you know a scribal propaganda piece, or it is the inspired word of God. And in that sense, going with the narrative, the narrative says this is God's commands. Does that make sense? Right, because you would say it's, it's an inspiration versus just your your worldview. So it, it gets into you know is this thing inspired? Is it fallible? Is it inerrant? Or not. So it sounds like you're saying that all these folks are, are kind of fit the mold of the liberal theologian in many ways, because they would push back well, against who, inspiration. Uh, no, I mean, I, I, I would say, so biblical scholars and ancient Near Eastern scholars, evangelical and, and liberal alike, will say that uh, ancient Near Eastern law codes, including the Hebrew Bible, uh, fit that pattern, right, of non-normative non-legislative text, right? Um, where they go theologically is, you know, a, a different thing. But the, the, the problem that I see, and Matt, I promise I'll stop too. You can, you can talk. I'm fine. <laughs> um, I have lots of stuff to say, but I'm fine. And part of the Cliff issue- and I, Cliff and I are sitting here going, we have exactly this, almost the same pose. <laughs> part of the issue here is like you mentioned the Canaanites, for example, you know, or the, the surrounding nations or the nations that were in Israel proper. If you're going to go with the narrative and say they're wicked and they're doing child sacrifice and brazen altars and burning, you know, children alive, you're going with the narrative, right? You're going with the, the, the Old Testament narrative, the narrative of the Hebrew Bible. That does, so there's conquest, there's an exodus, right? That's the narrative. So if you're going to go with that, then you have to go with, to be consistent, you have to go with Sinai. You have to go with what's going on there with the laws. The problem is that we know that the Canaanites weren't these wicked people. We know that the Exodus isn't what the biblical text portrays. Like this is consensus, ugh, consensus scholarship. Um, so it's you, you either have to distinguish them and talk about them in different realms and make sure that you're consistent within them. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's what you have to do. Either talking about the narrative or talking about what we know historically. I don't want to take any. You too, bite at the bit. Well, and that's interesting to talk about, you know, how did people, different people look at this? But I mean, for me, the question of the debate is really simple. Is biblical slavery immoral? And so for anything, if we're going to try to determine whether or not it's immoral, first thing is, you know, hey, let's let's make a statement and say, like, for example, do you think generally speaking, as a general rule, it's wrong to 
own people as property and pass them on to your kids. Because I do, and yet the Bible allows for that under some conditions. And I don't think the conditions that the Bible allows for it in any way eliminate whether or not it is a morally correct action. Like, would either of you be my slave under the rules in Exodus? Well, I think that ends the debate right there. Thanks. <laughs> I, it's, it I, I would genuinely love to. It depends, to, Matt. Okay. I got to get to know you better. <laughs> well, no, but no. do you think the slaves got to make a choice about whether or not they knew that person better? I mean. But now we're getting into to slave, right? And we're getting to slave, servant, Eved, Dulos. I, so I, I, I'm not worried about the word. All of that before we actually just let's, hop in. Let's, and, go, and, let's go with it, man. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to, but I'm talking about the position <laughs> where someone is owned as property. So, for example, yeah. if if um, among the people that you potentially could war with, do you think we should enslave the leftovers? Because I don't think that's moral. But what's worse is that the Bible doesn't even advocate merely enslaving the leftovers. The Bible advocates in Deuteronomy 2010 that you, you should go and and make proclaim peace to a, a, a tribe or a, a city that you fight with. And if they agree to peace, then you enslave them. That's, that's verses 10 and 11 of Deuteronomy 20. How is that moral? You have a basic presupposition that I disagree with. And that basic presupposition that you keep on banging on is because the Bible says it, that makes it true and good and moral. I started out with Matthew 19, guys. And in Matthew 19, Jesus is not saying that divorce is good. Can you connect saying, slavery? Can you connect slavery to Matthew 19? Absolutely. It's I mean, a basic biblically. principle of interpretation, which says just because there are laws in the Pentateuch that communicate if you're going to divorce, then you need to give your wife a certificate of divorce, doesn't make that God's ideal. I didn't nobody said anything about ideal. We're, we're talking about permissive. Hey, Matt, not just ideal. interrupted who here, Matt? That's fair, but you're repeating the same thing that we've already addressed. Who just interrupted who, Matt? I interrupted you. I fully acknowledge that. All right. Okay. Go ahead, Matt. You're at the floor. Wait. Let me just try and let me take a side of this. I'm saying that something is immoral. What difference does it make whether or not it was God's ideal? So you're you're talking about the suzerain suzerain and vassal treaties, right? And so if you think about, for example, Joshua in, in Joshua chapter 10, where Israel is supposed to, as the suzerain, help out the vassal, the Gibeonites. And they end up doing that in a very peaceful, and we know we can actually even use the word love, going back to this vassal-suzerain terminology, starts in Genesis with God and man, and then even in regards to Pharaoh, it's used. And But then there's another place in Scripture outside of Joshua where the suzerain, being the Israelites, don't go and save the Gibeonites. And God punishes punishes them for that, and so there's clearly a connection there where God is calling for that loving relationship where you are helping out those who are less than you. Okay, so two two things: one, Deuteronomy 20 is very clearly distinguishing right those that are far and those that are in the land of Israel, uh, in Israel proper, right? So those that are far become corvée labor if they submit. Best case scenario for them, right? They become mas, which is the Hebrew term for like tribute, corvée labor, right? So uh, what Solomon does with Israelites and what Solomon does with foreigners, and this is something that you, you're you're forced to work, right? I don't think they're, they, I don't, I wouldn't consider them slaves proper according to the definition that I gave earlier, but they're, they're, they're corvée labor, right? Um, so what you see with the Gibeonites also is not like the Gibeonites, that was in the narrative. 
the best case scenario for them. They either are stay under cherem, right, under the ban and are annihilated, uh, or they trick the Israelites and become like these water carriers, right? That, so, so their corvée labor. Uh, so, I, I mean, I think we need to be real honest about what the the narrative is saying. Um, th- this isn't like it, we wouldn't do this today. We wouldn't do it. Right. And I see. I, if this is going to be the big part of the debate, this is where I agree with you. Uh, we are not going to be operating in the same way that the Israelites, Canaanites, etc operated back then. We do not want to operate that way. I, I certainly hope not. But I mean, you brought up Solomon. And when Solomon talks about in Ecclesiastes, for example, Josh, when when he had in-home slaves, and yet clearly in Ecclesiastes, he says, be wise in how you treat them, treat them with love and respect, sacrifice for them. I mean, wasn't that pretty unique to that day and age? No. No? And I mean, you can, so- That's not humane- couple- Oh, sure. It's, I mean, it's it, it's it's more humane than beating them mercilessly. But that's a I, low if, bar. But if yeah, I mean, if you're going to do that, then you would have to say the law in the antebellum South was humane, mm-hmm. and we know that it wasn't. Right. A, the law the law in the antebellum South said, "Look, you can't murder your slave. Masters can't just murder their slaves, and they can't beat them except for moderate correction. That's the most. If you abuse your slave." You know, if you beat them more than moderate correction, well, I mean, there's there's serious punishment. If you kill them, it's like murdering a free white man, right? So, of course, that's not how it played out, right? Uh, there was significant loopholes that the people found in that. But but the point is that if we're going laws and laws uh, and comparing those, like I don't think anybody would want to make that argument that the that that legal stipulation that's there in in the antebellum South, it, it, like post-revolutionary antebellum south um was somehow and that's not my area of expertise i want to be clear about that uh but like that's we we wouldn't do that right and it's it's i think we would look back at that and say but it's the same rationale it's the same legal rationale that you see in exodus 21 i i have a side question that gets back to basically cliff and i are going to argue back and forth about this whole thing about whether it's god's ideal or whether the bible condones it now Condone means to accept or allow. The United States condones the drinking of alcohol by people over the age of 21. That does not mean the the United States is saying, oh, it's ideal for people to drink. It is talking about what is permissible, what is allowed. And the same thing applies if God or the authors of the Bible or somebody's interpretation of what the authors of the Bible meant or what God meant, whatever, say that you can in fact have slaves, you just can't beat them too much, and you have to let them go under certain circumstances. This is, I'm not saying and have never said, the Bible says slavery is God's ideal. That is a a ridiculous straw man. Mm -hmm. But the Bible absolutely condones, and and its its, its legalistic notion is condoning slavery within certain limits. And I'm saying what the Bible allows for, we'll call it biblical slavery, biblical servitude, whatever, is in fact, immoral and we all agree to that like i I would think we would all agree that owning someone as property is in fact immoral in in other cases i stood one day (laughs) this won't surprise either one of you Uh, i stood one day at a debate and there were four apologists uh, who i was not debating but who came to watch and i won't give you their names although you know some of them and one of them asked a question about slavery and for the next 20 minutes all four of them offered four different 
rationalizations and excuses and understandings and explanations for slavery. And I just looked at him and said, when you guys figure out what the actual right answer is, come back and present that to me, because I'd rather de debate the one right answer than four views about right answer. But if the Bible says you can have slaves as long as you do it this way, how is that not condoning slavery? The Apostle Paul wrote, obey the government. It was the government that separated Paul's head from his body. So when Paul says obey the government, he's not saying, oh, by the way, and, and what Hitler will do is really good in gassing Jews. No, he's addressing a fallen world. And that's why one of my points was the fall. The Bible addresses the very real existence of evil. Not every government is good. And when governments institute slavery, the Bible is not saying that that's good. And when the government says, decapitate the Apostle Paul, that is not good. And when Nero lit his, gar his gardens with Christian martyrs on torches, the Bible is not saying that that is good. And when the Bible says that marriage is to be a lifelong commitment between people, and then says, okay, because of the hardness of people's hearts, yes, divorce is going to occur, and Moses permits it there in the Old Testament, and when the Bible communicates that all people have been created in the image of God and all people have equal value and dignity, and then it begins to instruct people about how to control slavery, not approving slavery, but acknowledging that in a fallen, sin-cursed world, slavery occurs, divorce occurs, government cut people's heads off. Get ready, Paul, because you're going to get your head cut off. And yet Paul writes, obey the government. You've got to think through what is going on here. I did. What is the standard? What is the ideal? And what is the evidence that sin has gotten into the mix and really messed things up like slavery? It just sounds like you're saying that the Bible condones things that God and the people knew to be immoral, that, that are in fact immoral. Because and God could just, why, why isn't there an 11th commandment that says, thou shalt not own another human being as property? And instead, the Bible says the exact opposite. Now, and why it's not, one, do not, it's, it, do not it's, steal was actually appealing to cattle. And do oh, not that's, steal that's nonsense. Well, that's, it's, 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 it's not absolute nonsense. Back me up here, Josh. Go ahead, back him up, Josh. I'll bet you money. So two things. So Exodus 21, 16, Deuteronomy 24, 7, right? This is about the unlawful taking of someone else's property. Right. So uh, don't steal somebody else's car does not mean don't own cars. Right. So we have to make sure we have that distinction in mind. Um, shoot. What were you Bang. guys talking about just before this? Sorry, sorry. Leviticus 25. I, I'd be interested to know because this is a problem for this sort of idea of God um, progressively uh, enduring the sinfulness of man. The reason that I asked you about Matthew 19 and making a specific connection in the biblical text between Matthew 19 and that principle on slavery is because of this in particular. So Leviticus 25 is the last, arguably, I think that's consensus scholarship, um, of the three legal sections in the biblical text, the holiness code, right? And what it does is it turns Exodus 21 sort of on its head. And one of the things that it does is Exodus 21, Deuteronomy 15, both say you can treat an Israelite like an Evid, like a slave, right? Leviticus 25, 39 to 43 says, 
no more. You cannot treat an Israelite as an Eved, right? It shows the progression and how they fall into poverty. And if they get to the point where they sell themselves, it says you're no longer allowed to treat an, a fellow Israelite as an Eved, as a slave. You have to treat him as a Sahir, which is a, like a hired worker, right? So then verse 44 you know, it fronts, the, the, the grammar fronts this and says, so as for your male and female slaves, whom you will have, right, you're going to get them from the nations around you, you're going to get them from the tenant farmers living in your midst. So my, I think the problem for this sort of progressive idea, aside from the fact that the New Testament authors don't condemn it, and that the early church wrestled with it like crazy, right? Uh, you can read Jennifer Glancy, you can read Ronald Charles, recent 2020 publication on this. But Aside from that, God does seem fit in the narrative of the text in the legal section of Leviticus 25 to say at some degree, at some level, it's not good to be a slave and you can't treat the Israelites like slaves anymore. And had it had it stopped there and moved on, I would say you've got a decent case for it. The problem is that it says bad for Israelites, but not for foreigners. You can you can do it with foreigners. So that's a weird idea, not not an ethicist, but, but it's a even weird if you, moral perception. Sure, but even if you dissect the word Hebrew, I mean, you you get so way more understanding of social classes rather than different. There's a matter of difference of ethnicities. It's 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 Israelites, and I mean, I can give you citations on it if you want. Okay, so I'll believe you on that. But okay, even the word slave, I mean, <laughs> I'm going to believe you on a lot of things. Actually, sorry, you did just write a book this, on this. It's my wheelhouse. A little bit. Sorry. That sounded really arrogant. Sorry. No, absolutely not. Come on. 800 times the word slave, Ebed, comes up in the Old Testament, right? Yeah. And doulos, I don't know how many times you have it in the New Testament, but 6% of the time, it has to do with chattel and subjugation. Mm-hmm. And the 93, 94% of the time, it has to do with more servitude. Mm-hmm. And so hanging too tightly to this understanding more so of all of the issues that Matt brings up in terms of the tremendous, you know, malevolence of it. Don't you have to wrestle with that as well? Percentage yeah, so, so lexicography is, you know, looking at a, at a word like the word run, right? My car runs, I run, my nose is running, right? All of these things are context dependent. So, and this is not just true of the word slave in the Hebrew Bible, right? It's tr- true of the word wardom in Akkadian, right? Um, uh, you know, or like Gemma and Sumerian or, you know, Arad. But the, 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 the problem with this is that the context is what's driving the meaning of the term. So you're absolutely right. There's no question. If you read through the Amarna letters, for example, in the 14th century, you see like the Canaanite, um, the Canaanite kings that are living there in the land, like Ribadu or something, they're writing to the Egyptian pharaoh and saying, your slave writes to you, right? It is a king. He's, 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 he's not a slave, like we're defining this term, but that's how he's using that term, right? So there's great fluidity with the word slave. David is a slave, right? The, the, the servant in Isaiah, the slave in Isaiah. Mm-hmm. The, so, the, so the question that one has to ask is, it, what, what you can't do is say, well, look, it, you, it often means this, like really elite sort of person. So that means it has to mean that here. That's not how lexicography is done. Lexicography is what is in the context, what is being described. And in a place like Leviticus 25, 44 to 46, or even broader context there of the chapter, Eved there means someone who is owned as property. They're passed down as inheritance. They they serve olam, right, in the Hebrew, forever into perpetuity. Uh, They're owned as achuzah, the Hebrew word for property, landed property. It's the only place that's ever used as, as people, 
uh, or four people. So yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely context dependent, but the context demands it in in these cases that we're discussing, in my opinion, and in consensus scholarship. Sorry, property. Yeah. Since you guys keep bringing it up, this is for both of you guys. That was the first one that stuck out and hit me between the eyes too. But I mean, in doing a little bit of study here, in the book of Ezekiel, when God is considered property, it's considered the, the inheritance, possession. I mean, it, if you're going to take property with, with the definition that we're giving it, then all of a sudden we're calling God chattel. So um, Ezekiel 44, sorry. 44, yeah. Yeah, so Ezekiel 40, yeah, 44, 48, 48 is, yeah. Josh, so that, that, Josh, I should get through this list and then you can blow all of them up. But let me let me just get through a couple of these. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> so this, I mean, the second one would be it's the language. So like, I'm a James Harden fan. He was just traded. A player is traded. We use the language again today. That's not Paul Copan. We we could use Copan in another way. It, um, so I wouldn't say property is referring to a, a piece of dirt or a piece of furniture. Um, so it's not sinister. If silver was involved, then it would potentially become that. Then we could say, yes, they are dirt in many ways. Or, I mean, again, it's, it's they weren't seen as disposable goods, but only as the economic output. And I think that does say something. And you have to dissect property before just from Matt's way of saying, hey, here in our American understanding, our culture today, you want to be my piece of property? You know, my, my piece of meat. Actually, that's not what I said. No, I don't no. care about America or our understanding today. I asked if you would be my slave under Exodus 21's rules. All right. Well, let me, Matt, let me, but, let me just dissect yeah, go these ahead. two real quick and then I'll, I'll be quiet because I've talked way too much. So um, the word ahuzah, there are two words that we see in, in, in uh, these passages that are translated as property, right? In Exodus 21, 21, you see the word kesef, which is like the word silver. And so you'll see different translations, like because they are your money, because they are your property. Um, so th the word property there is absolutely fine, right? There's there's no problem with that. That's a debt slave. Debt slaves are there because that's why they're called their their kesef, right? That's their their uh, their silver. That's the the form of payment. So, but the the word that you're describing that's in Ezekiel 44 is the word achuzah, which is what shows up in Leviticus 25, 44, 45, 41, 45, or 44. Anyway, in that section. Uh, that's about shadow slaves. Now, what Ezekiel is describing is Ezekiel's talking about in that section, the priesthood. And one of the things that, and you guys probably know this, uh, there was a tribe of Israel that was not given landed property, that was not given specific land in, in the nation of Israel, like all the other tribes were, the tribe, the Levites, right? So the, that's what the word Ahuzam means. If you read through Leviticus 25, you'll see it over and over again. Their landed property, their landed property, their Ahuzah, the, 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 the fields that they owned, right? That was their landed property. It went down, it passed down from generation to generation. That's why you couldn't sell it and not have it returned in the Jubilee because it belonged to that family, belonged to the clan and the tribe anyway. So that's what the word describes. So the problem is the Levites don't get any Ahuzah right? They don't get any landed property. So what Ezekiel is saying in Ezekiel 44 is, hey, Levites, you don't get Ahuzah, but don't worry about it. I'm your Ahuzah. How am I your Ahuzah? I'm going to provide you with all the Israelites, for example, are going to bring sacrifices and provide for you. Like you don't have to go out and be your, you know, work your landed property. I'm going to be that. I'm going to take care of that. 
Um, so the, the, the very fact, it actually, it's, it sort of hurts the argument that it's not landed property, Ezekiel 44, uh, because that's what the word means. That's what he's describing. He's saying, you, you guys don't get property that gets passed down from generation to generation, but metaphorically, I am. And by that, what, what I mean, you, you can read in the text, uh, he's talking about what they get because of his provision, Right. But again, it, it sort of hurts the argument because he's using the landed property analogy uh, to, to to make that case, to make that point. The other thing, and then I'll I'll stop, but because you asked two things, and now my screen won't unlock. Um, <laughs> but you uh, uh, traded, yes. So um, uh, the idea that's this is the reason that I define slavery. Um, sports players right, for example, are not, they don't fit the definition of slave. Um, so sports players are traded, right, but they can leave whenever they like. They might suffer, you know, that they don't get their contract in, in its entirety or whatever. But th like making the connection between a sports player being traded um, or being purchased, you know, their contract being purchased, the problem with that and trying to connect that to uh, Leviticus 25 or to any type of ancient Near Eastern slavery is that the people themselves are owned. The people themselves are passed on as inheritance. They cannot leave. And that that's the last thing I'll say. You brought up Deuteronomy 23, 15, and 16. It comes up all the time. I just want to point this out. That doesn't have anything to do with an Israelite slave or anyone that's in the land of Israel leaving a master because they're getting beaten or because they're getting abused or something. That's not what that law is saying. You talked about how Deuteronomy is this suzerain vassal treaty, right? And we see these in like the Esau had succession treaty, which is arguably what it's modeled after. Um, this is talking about a, a foreigner, someone from a foreign nation leaving their foreign master and coming into Israel if they had a suzerain vassal treaty or if they had a treaty of any kind with the surrounding nations, those treaties would stipulate that they had to return that. You can see that in the ancient Near Eastern law codes, Ornamu, Lepidishtar, Hammurabi, I think they're, they're all in there. Um, don't quote me on that specifically, but there are two of them um, at least. But that's because then you can see that in the text where it says, give them a place to live among you where they choose. If these were Israelites that were escaping, it wouldn't be a question of where would they go? They go back to their land, right? And this is, again, this is consensus scholarship. This is, I'm not coming up with anything new. Okay, done. We just uh, will give the uh, next person a chance to respond, but do want to let you know that we should go into those closing statements somewhat soon if you guys are up for it. I'm I'm ready for that whenever. I just I didn't know how much time there was. I don't know if Cliff or Stuart had something it. else to put in. We're right on the kind of the point where we'd normally go in. So if you do have something that you want to respond, if you think you're able to fit it into five minutes for each team, that would be a good time to jump because we do have a good amount of questions already. And so with that, everybody cool with that? I'm confused. Are you asking us to do five minute closings now? Or are you asking us to talk for five more minutes and then do closing? Five more, or I should say five minute closings from each side. Okay. Each we team. can do that. I just sent you a message, Josh. I've got it if, if that's all right you. Yeah, sure. Go ahead. Um, okay. Uh, I'll go, and then they'll get the last word, and then we'll take questions. Sure. Is biblical slavery moral? I say no. Now, you can write it off as, well, that's just Matt's opinion, but generally what I'm objecting to, I think everybody objects to. I say 
biblical slavery is immoral. They say, well, slavery is immoral, but the Bible doesn't claim it's an ideal or claim it as a moral good. The Bible doesn't condone it. It merely legislates it. And that doesn't mean that the Bible is supporting it. This is not true. The Bible permits owning slaves. It permits owning people as property. It, it, it permits subjecting them to inheritance. It allows you to beat them as long as they don't die within a day or two. It was legal under Jewish law. The Bible permits something and legislates it, and it is still immoral even in its legislative state. The fact that they wouldn't be my slaves under biblical rules wasn't surprising, and that's good. But if God can say, don't eat shrimp, he can say, don't own people. What do we talk about? Well, Josh and I tried to talk about some specifics about slavery. We didn't read everything. I didn't read through all of Exodus 21. We didn't go into great detail about the fact that there are different sets of rules for Hebrews and non-Hebrews, different sets of rules for male slaves and female slaves. And also that immediately after saying you have to let your Hebrew slaves go after in the seventh year, uh, it also tells you how to trick them into being your slave forever by giving them a wife because the male slaves go free, but the women don't. So don't tell me that the Bible and God is the book about equality because men and women aren't free. Jews and Gentiles aren't free. The Hebrews are selected people. There's nothing in there about equality in the grand sense. There's equality in the sense that they want to point to passages. They, we went to specifics about slavery. They went to general statements that didn't address slavery, but talked about love, talked about God's image, talked about all sorts of things that might be a general, hey, we can do slavery better, or we can do better than slavery. And the, and the slavery in the Old Testament isn't the worst slavery we can imagine. Uh, hey, we were trying to make sure that they treated their slaves better when that's not worthy of applause. What's worthy of applause is getting slaves free. They went to the general statements. We could do better. Jesus loves everybody. They're all going to get to go to heaven. God doesn't see free or slave. Well, hoorah. But at no point does the Bible say slavery is wrong. There's no explicit recommendation on that front. You have to interpret that by going to general things and ignoring the specifics. At no point does it explicitly prohibit owning people's property. In fact, it does the opposite. It literally, specifically allows owning people's property, which is one of the primary things that I find objectionable about slavery. We're being asked to view this as if it could be, if, if, if it's better than the worst slavery. Well, congratulations, I'm in agreement. Biblical slavery isn't the worst slavery that I can imagine. I can imagine worse. But the Bible isn't a book of equality, despite pointing to flowery passages. Were women allowed to own property? Were women allowed to inherit? Do women have equal rights to men? No. Do slaves have equal rights? No. What was the guarantee of their rights? These biblical sanctions, whether you call it slavery or not, whatever the Bible sanctions, whether you call it slavery or not, is grossly immoral. The authors of the Old Testament got it wrong. This is the easiest thing for anybody to admit. In fact, some other apologists that I've engaged with, um, when, I, when I brought this up to Ray Comfort, he was like, well, I don't believe everything that's in the Bible. And I thought, huh, that's, that's interesting. You can sort that out with, with the other apologists, but it's a, a good way out of it. The authors of the Old Testament got it wrong, but the authors of the New Testament never correct it. They didn't come out and say, hey, we got that wrong. This is the embarrassing thing about accepting that there is a God that is good that inspired this book and therefore that nothing in this book could in fact, that is viewed as a, an instruction from God or something that God allows, nothing, nothing that could be viewed as immoral. And I know that they didn't necessarily say that, but whenever I ask, hey, is this moral? Is this moral? Is this moral? We're not getting really good answers. I don't know. I don't even, <laughs> I'm baffled in 2021, that anyone 
could suggest that the Bible doesn't, in fact, condone slavery, doesn't say it's the perfect ideal or anything. But to say the Bible doesn't condone slavery, when condone means allow and permit, when it condone is about legislation, is just bizarre to me. I don't want to make any accusations about, you know, intentional dishonesty. I think that there are protective measures in place that religions put into people to keep them from recognizing that this is so obviously immoral. We could throw this out entirely and it doesn't impact whether or not there was a Jesus or anything along those lines. Why is it so hard to admit that ancient people got something wrong, that they advocated for immorality? Because not just slavery that's immoral in the Bible, it's their warmongering ways and their inequality and countless other things, forcing, forcing a rapist victim to marry that rapist, potentially. I know it says that the rapist will be forced to marry the victim, and it doesn't say that the victim will be forced to marry the rapist, but that's because the victim's views and, and consent are never in, in, in involved. There's so much wrong with the Bible, but at least if we can't agree that what the Bible says about owning people's property, that you can beat them, that you can pass them on, that you buy them from your heathens, here's how you trick your Jewish servants, here's how you trick your Jewish slaves into being slaves forever, if we can't agree that that's immoral, I don't know how we progress from here. And that's as genuine as I can be. Thanks very much. We will kick it over to Stuart and Cliff for their closing statement as well. Then we'll be going right into the Q&A. Thanks for all your questions, folks. The Bible insists that slavery is wrong from Genesis to Revelation. Those seven points again, we are created in the image of God. That is the basis for human dignity. That is why Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. That's why we read in Leviticus 19, love your neighbor as yourself. Secondly, the Bible communicates a fall. We human beings are broken. We have a problem with sin. And one of the clearest examples of sin is slavery. So is divorce. So is corrupt government. So is polygamy. Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. And when you open up the Bible, you don't just read about slavery. You read about murder and rape and polygamy and a lot of evil. And the Bible insists that that is a perversion of God's good creation. Where is God's good creation talked about? In Genesis 1 and 2? Where is heaven talked about? Revelation 21 and 22. What's in between the first two chapters of the Bible and the last two chapters of the Bible? The record of how fallen, sinful, broken women and men blow it all over the place and God's amazing grace, his amazing patience in working with broken people like the Apostle Peter, who denied knowing him three times, and yet even he received the grace of God and became a leader in the first century church. The Bible insists that the, one of the greatest miracles is the Exodus, where God rescues the Hebrew slave, slaves out of Egypt. Jesus Christ in the Gospels insists that God loved the world, the whole world so much, that he sent his only son to die on that cross, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Do you understand? God has a price tag on your head and my head, and that price tag is the death of his only son, Christ. Slavery, racism are wrong, and Christ bled and died on a cross to forgive us for that wrong. The Church of Jesus Christ battled with racism. The Jew-Gentile issue almost split the first century church. And yet the clear message of after that struggle was Jew and Gentile are equal before God. Slave and free are equal before God. All you got to do is read Acts chapter 15. And you know very well that racism was one of the first major problems in that first century church that was dealt with 
in that first council in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15. So to try and maintain that the Bible doesn't stand against slavery, against racism, is totally inaccurate. And in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, we read that in heaven, there will be people of every tribe, every language, every nation. And the Bible gives a whole book, the letter of Philemon, to pointing out how slavery is wrong. Now, Paul is not going to lead an armed revolt against Rome. He didn't do that to save his own neck. And he didn't do that to abolish slavery. But he communicates the love of God, the love of Christ, is at the root of abolishing racism, abolishing slavery. Was it difficult for the first century to agree with that? Of course it was. The Jew-Gentile issue almost split the church in the first century wide open. And the Bible records that. But that's not God's ideal. God's ideal is that we love each other, that we respect each other, and that we overcome slavery, racism, that we overcome marital problems that split marriages wide open in divorce, that we overcome governments that are bad and that martyr Christians for their faith in Christ. And yet still, even in the midst of that martyrdom, there's a plea from Paul, from the New Testament, from the scriptures, obey the government officials. Now, if you, if you attack those passages with too wooden an approach to interpretation, you will get royally confused royally confused. What is wrong with the Apostle Paul? He's calling people to obey government, and the government is slaughtering Christians, himself included, the Apostle Paul. Yeah, he's not saying that every government is good. Governments are like individuals. At times they do good, at times they promote slavery, but when they're doing right, they're going to stand against slavery. At times they promote racism, but when they're doing right, they're going to stand against racism. That's good government versus bad government. Lots of examples in the Bible, of good government in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, as well as bad government. You got it. Thank you very much. We are going to jump into the Q&A, folks. I want to remind you that our guests are linked in the description and want to ask the guests if you guys can do me a favor. We've got a lot of questions. We're going to try to get through every single one of them. And so if you guys want to have a rebuttal here and there, cool. But if you're able to minimize them, we can get through most or hopefully the goal is all these. But Smokey Saint, thanks for your super chat. Said more debates on this topic. Please, I volunteer. Well, thanks for that feedback. Zach, thanks so much. Who said, I'm so happy to hear this song. Thanks so much, Zach, for your positive support at the start. Bill Levine says, why not just say the Bible is sometimes wrong, especially on this topic? The apologetics for this topic are questionable at best. Nefarious, in my opinion. The Bible condones slavery. So we'll give you a chance to respond, Cliff and Stuart, on why not just say the Bible is sometimes wrong. Sure. There's 1,400 vari variations, manuscript variants in, in our, what, 5,800 manuscripts? So the Bible gets a lot of things wrong, especially in, in scribal errors. Does, does the Bible in any of those versions ever say, it is immoral and wrong to own someone's property because as far as I know, all the versions of those say that it's permissible. It depends. Respond, then we go to the next one. I'll go with it depends. I have so many friends that are lawyers and all of them say it depends all the time. <laughs> the best answer. Next up, Smokey Saint, thanks for your, says, after show on my channel, right after the debate, open mic, there's nothing wrong with biblical slavery, change my mind. Gotcha. Cider and Port, thanks for your super chat, said, debate I mentioned is organized 
James Leo sent you an email. Hope you'll have us be <laughs> okay. Thank you, bet. We'll have you back on. Cider Report says, Why is slavery wrong? Well, safe to say, Matt and Dr. Josh won. Question for Cliff Would you ever be someone's slave? Why or why not? No, I don't believe in slavery. I started off by pointing out slavery is evil. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 34. The alien living with you must be treated as one of your native born. Love them as yourself, for you are aliens in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Does that verse include the word slavery? Deuteronomy 10, verses 17 and 19. God shows no partiality. You are to love those who are aliens, for you yourselves were aliens in Egypt. Do so either yes, of those Bible verses include the word slavery? I, I've got to, we've got to get through these questions. So uh, if you're able to, well, let's see. So I, I, we don't, frankly, we don't need to answer the question. Neither of those verses include the word slavery at all. A, a short and pithy. And then Matt, I, this is the second one. And, or Well, no, not the second oh, one. Was it? But we do have to keep, we've got a lot of questions. I, I didn't like have anything just, else to add, James. Just that those just, verses don't mention slavery. This is a slavery. very common ancient Near Eastern trope. Looking out for the foreigner. Has nothing to do with slavery. Gotcha. You guys want the last word, Cliff? Because the original super chat was you could say targeting your argument. Yeah, I I can't even remember what the, the what was his point. Would you ever be someone's slave? No, slavery is evil. I wouldn't choose to be a slave, and I will never enslave anybody. And racism is wrong, regardless of it, whether it's communicated by Republicans or Democrats or Independents. Why? Because there's a God in heaven who has given all human beings equal value and dignity. That's why slavery is wrong. Everyone was a slave to somebody in the Old Testament, and all the early Christians were a slave to Christ. Next up, Language and Programming Channel says, Jesus says in Matthew 5, not one jot or tittle of the Torah can be abridged, and that whoever does the least of it will be, con will be condemned includes slavery. Cliff and Stuart will give you a chance to respond. One more time, James. I think they're just saying the Old Testament teaches slavery, and Jesus in Matthew 5, I think it's 28 or 27. Oh, it's got to be later than that. But they say that Jesus, and you remember in Matthew 5, yes. the not one jot mm -hmm. or tittle of the Torah can yep. be a Brit. Right. Well, so now what you've got to do is you've got to read it real carefully. And you can't be a narrow-minded conservative, and you can't be a narrow-minded liberal. Instead, you've got to allow great fluidity in the text— You've got to acknowledge that a lot of sin is communicated throughout the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation and then respond wisely and appropriately to whatever the issue is. Gotcha. And the and Bible Reed, never condones slavery. Mark Reed, thanks for your question for Cliff. Exodus 21, 7 says, quote, when a man sells his daughter as a slave, what did she do wrong that is comparable to a prisoner or criminal to deserve that? Well, she doesn't deserve it. But the point is, probably what happened was because most men, fathers, don't sell their daughters. Probably they're facing incredible financial pressure. There's severe debt accumulation. And she, he is giving his daughter up to a, an employer who will employ the woman, pay her, put a roof over her head, because he's probably on the brink of starvation and not being able to provide. But if it is referring to a father denigrating his daughter by selling her into chattel slavery— to try and argue from the nature of God as revealed from Genesis to Revelation that that is God's will? No way. Next up, Jay Mixon, thanks for your super chat, said, Stuart and Cliff, if we if we grant that God forbids man-stealing, 
Is there anything in the Bible that indicates God forbids buying a stolen man? Okay. Yeah, all human beings are created in the image of God, male and female. It's not just men who are created in the image of God. Women are. And to have a woman slave or a male slave is a sad, sad commentary on the sinfulness of the human heart. Now, in certain situations, to hire a person who has to pay off debt, to hire a person, if you call it indentured servant, if you call it bond servant, if you call it slave, whatever you want to call it, employee, because they are in trouble and because they need help to put food on their in their mouths and sustain their lives, yes, I would argue that throughout history there have been sad ways of dealing with that, including debtor's prison well, in Europe. Must uh, animated effigy. Thanks for your question. Said I, the Bible was used okay. to justify slavery for hundreds of years. It was also used by abolitionists. It's obvious that this book is not clear on this topic. I, I so want to respond to the last one because if all we're doing is talking about, hey, let's give poor people jobs, I would think that the almighty, all wise governor of the universe would find a way to convey that message that doesn't include statements like, you shall buy your slaves from the heathen that surround you. And if a man shall sell his daughter to be a maidservant, she shall not go out as the men servants do. You wouldn't set up different rules based on the gender of whoever you're giving a job to. This is a very Pollyannish, anachronistic view by Cliff, in my opinion, of looking at what this actually means without looking at it in the context of history or what the passage literally says. Well, Matt, I'm so glad to hear you say the context of history. Bravo. Yeah. So go back and study how women were treated at that time. Yeah. The sexism was off the charts. Horrendous. And the Bible sanctioned it. All right. The Bible doesn't sanction that. You bet it does. It all. absolutely does. The Bible so gives we, instructions we go, and regulations topic, on how I, I do have to, to say live in a messed up world. This is ridiculous. This next one. Animated Effigy. Got that one. Thank you for your super chat. Gamol79. Didn't see a question attached. David P. Neff. Okay. Some of these are frankly just insults, and we're not going to read insults to our guests. So good day to you, sir. Thanks for your super chat. Said Hebrews and Jeremiah 3414 are to be released after six years in Mosaic law. Heathens and strangers around Israel, Leviticus 2544, can be kept forever. Or Stuart and Cliff, would you concede that, or would you say it's in the context that would be morally acceptable in some way? All right, what's the passage? <laughs> Exodus perpetuity. Leviticus 2544. It's hard to, yeah, I, I, you can't disagree with that. Meanwhile, something similar happens in Exodus 21, where if the servant comes, you know, you're supposed to be let go, but you're not going to let his wives go. Then he can come forward and say that he loves his master, wants to stay there, and then you drive a, an all through their ear to mark them as your property, and he shall be your property forever. This is not indentured servitude, which is, by the way, immoral as well. It just wasn't the topic of conversation tonight. We have done away with indentured servitude. We have done away with debtors' prisons. We have, we can still go to jail for not paying a fine, but there are different things. We've learned a lot since these books were miswritten. Well, Matt, when you say it's immoral, says who? Me. Says and that's who, all Matt? that matters. That's legitimately all that matters, Cliff, because all you're going to say is you think God does it. Well, produce the God and have God say it's immoral and have God defend his case. Because until then, like you said earlier, it's just competing opinions. But I thought that we were in agreement that owning people as property was immoral. Next, Cliff, 
uh, or I should say, this is a good day user asked Matt, are prisoners in the United States considered slaves as Cliff has said? No. No, not at all. Not even in the slightest. They still have laws. They're wards of the state. They're things you can't do to them. Just j Slavery isn't just someone's been deprived of their freedom for some reason. Slavery is uh, reducing someone's autonomy and making them subject to some other person's whims. It is fundamentally different to incarcerate someone in order to protect others from dangerous criminals and other things like that. But criminals aren't slaves. Gotcha. And thank you very much for your super chat. This one comes in from Gamol79 said, the Exodus, the Exodus wasn't about rescuing slaves. It was about rescuing the Hebrews. The slaves of the other nations were left exposed to the plagues, and they were not spared from the Passover. Cliff and Stuart, I think that's for you. Yeah, they weren't spared from the Passover. But what was the pointed question within that? I think they're saying the point of the Exodus wasn't about God, you could say, pouring out wrath on slavery per se, but more so about saving the Hebrews because they are saying that there were still non-Hebrew slaves that God did not uh, sure. call out through the Exodus. I agree with that. Gotcha. And I never said that once, yeah. Mike Ann, thank you for your super chat, said someone who knows Bible better than, let's see, it's uh. More that I'm just looking for things that aren't insults. Real questions. Gamal says, also, the slaves of the nation were left behind. Namely, I think they mean like local Egyptians, maybe, that were enslaved. Jamie Russell, thanks for your, if you want to respond, though, you can, but it sounds like you agreed with that. Jamie Russell, thanks for your super chat, said, I humbly ask for Matt to steel man the notion of slavery making moral sense in very particular circumstances. You want me to steel man what would be morally permissible slavery. I don't think that there is any such scenario. I think that by the time you define what you want, what would be morally permissible slavery, it's no longer slavery in any meaningful sense. And so I, I, I genuinely have no idea. I, I'm fine with the notion that morality is situational, uh, but I'm not aware of any realistic situation under which I would say it was all right to own someone's property. And so if you say, well, maybe maybe if they consent to slavery, well, that already isn't slavery. It's it's not, slaves weren't just there because, yeah, I'm okay with it. And when I get up and it's time for me to leave, I'll just leave and that's just fine. That's not the way slavery works. So I think by the time you try to steal man it, you're no longer talking about slavery. And what you're talking about is is something where um, we're taking a necessary step to either protect protect the public good or protect individuals, et cetera. So I, I couldn't, it would be like saying, please steal man rape. Uh, I can't do it because the only way to do it would be to say, oh, well, where there is consent, and then all of a sudden it's not rape. And and so I can, I'm not going to, to steal man a notion that you could violate consent and that would be permissible. Uh, Amongst adults. Now, maybe, uh, you know, when you're the steward of someone and you have to make medical decisions for them, you know, your kid's crying and doesn't want a shot. Okay, now we are violating consent, but not in the context of rape, et cetera. Jeff Exican, thanks for your question, said, Matt, since leaving Christianity, have you found any good answers to the questions that made you leave? Yes or no? Or, ooh, excuse me. Or have you stopped looking and feel you can never reconcile yourself back with God? Um, I, well, boy, that's a hard question because 
I have found answers to some of the things that I didn't have answers to. Um, not to like big questions. So like, why is there something rather than nothing? I don't know. Uh, I don't think anybody else does either. Uh, what is the explanation for the origin of the universe? I don't know. And I don't think anybody else does either. We're still working on it. There are plenty of people who think they know what it is. Um, I, if, if in fact Christianity were true and God existed and um, God came down and talked to me and explained a bunch of stuff, I still wouldn't worship, but I would believe that the person, the end of that individual existed and I would be fine taking them at face value. You know, they, they say, here's, here's what I really think about what's moral. That would be, I would love to have that conversation. I, no offense to, to, to Cliff and Stewart, who I genuinely like and enjoy talking to, but I'd rather talk to God. And I wish one of these days God would show up instead of evidently sending representatives. Next up. 100th Monkey, thanks for your super sticker. Appreciate the support. And Jay Mixon says, Cliff and Stewart, is there any atrocity that cannot be reconciled by appealing to the concept of divine punishment or reward? If I can just pick on Matt for one second, because I know he likes it. I love it. <laughs> Before we get to that, what, I think the prelude to this debate was one, I laughed at the idea of slavery, but Really, I was laughing at something else. Matt thought I was laughing. I was glad he got upset. He had righteous indignation about it, and that kind of led – that was one of the things. The second thing, though, was Matt got this question. I had fallen asleep during the Q&A time, but a question – I went back and I checked it, and the person asked, Matt, you said slavery was wrong because, because it didn't benefit society in the long term. If slavery did benefit the society for the long term, would it be correct? Not necessarily. And Matt, Matt gulped for a long time. I was drinking a lot during the debate too. Oh, sorry. And if, I... you, if you define correct, Matt said – it was the best for humanity. It turns out slavery was in the best interest for humanity, of course. But it turns out terminal prostate cancer, Matt said, was for the betterment. But we know terminal prostate cancer is not for the betterment because that has never happened. But people have thought slavery has been in the past. And so that was very concerning, Matt, when you did say that. And so I just found that interesting that that was what, kind of the prelude to this debate now. What, what was concerning? Because the question that was asked um, – it's very similar to the question that was just asked, and I think the answer that I gave is pretty much consistent in that I don't see any way to steal men slavery. Um, but if if somebody's case was, what if slavery turned out to be good for the for us? I I'm of course I'm going to flummox for a while because I can't imagine a scenario where that is the case. However, what we've observed about it being bad, if it turned out that somebody said, ah yes, there's all these things about slavery that are bad. But there's this other thing that's really good that we haven't discovered yet, and this changes everything. Great. As soon as that comes up and it changes everything, I'm happy to try and change my mind. But these sorts of fanciful questions, this is why I went, unfortunately, and I apologize for not giving anybody a warning, but this is why I went to rape. Because I can't imagine a scenario under which violating someone else's consent to sexual intercourse could ever be morally permissible. And I, I don't forget don't forget what why do you have that feeling because you need the bible in order to critique the bible and if no, you, could, you don't if you could say that the judeo-christian values where it started in the in the west and understanding how we got there J james go ahead maybe we'll come back to this judeo-christian values doesn't care about consent jay mixon thank you doesn't treat rapists as if they're victims it so, treats rapists as if they're property that's it. what the bible does. no it does stop that right now <laughs> Video. Next up, Jay Mixon says, Stuart and Cliff, is there any atrocity that cannot be reconciled by appealing to the concept of divine punishment or reward? Guys, it's real simple. Obviously, every single human being 
can create their own definition of right and wrong. All I'm saying is, if that's true, that we create the definitions of right and wrong, then right and wrong are relative. My experience of life is that the abuse of an innocent child is never right. There are moral absolutes, maybe not many, but at least a few. When I say moral absolute, I mean an intangible value that is real and true for every person in every situation. I'm convinced that there are not many of those. There's a lot of relative morality, but there are at least a few moral absolutes. And the only way there can be a few moral absolutes is if there was a mind prior to the human mind that creates and defines those moral absolutes, i.e., there's got to be a lawmaker. There's got to be some type of God. Next That's up, not true, but we can have a debate on morality another day. Atheist says, question for Matt and Josh, says the UN doesn't outlaw slavery in its member states and gives them millions in aid every year. Is the UN evil? Does the UN condone slavery? Sorry, are you waiting for me to go? So I'm, I'm obviously not an expert on what the UN says. I thought that there were articles that say that slavery is outlawed, but I mean, I'm not an expert and that's not my field. Gotcha. Um, yeah, and, and I don't know what the, the what the UN specific position on is. I'd have to go back and look through the UN charter and other stuff, but there are international laws uh, against slavery. I, yeah. But, but the question about is the UN immoral? If the UN um, tells its member nations that it is pr legally permissible under UN guidelines to have slaves, then yes, the UN has an immoral position. Gotcha. Thank you very much for your question. This one coming in from Japexican007 says, yes, slavery is immoral like an addict. That's a slave to his addiction. Humans are all slaves to sin. God offers to free everyone from their sins. This is the whole point. Pain and suffering exist because sin exists. Sin is a nonsense notion, but that's for another debate, too. Germania, thanks for your question, said, God gave over 600 laws. Why didn't he just add, thou shalt not have slaves? Good. Yeah. I do not know. I don't know why God didn't say child abuse is wrong. I don't know why exactly Jesus didn't say very specifically that certain things that are wrong are, are wrong. I, I think it's a little naive to think that Jesus or anybody is going to address every moral situation. <laughs> And then to conclude that because he didn't address very specifically every moral situation, he's wrong or he's unreliable. Jesus never talked about transgender. It doesn't mean he's wrong or an idiot because he didn't talk about transgender. So, I mean, come on. Next but uh, but I, it, it, sorry, but I think that he did. Like if you read through Luke 17, for example, the, the, the uh, example that he gives to the disciples um, is which one of you having a slave serving in the field all day when he comes in from the field would say, hey, have a seat and have, have dinner with me, right? No, you wouldn't say that, right, is the, the conditional clause there. Uh, but you would rather say, get in there and, you know, cook Make my, my meal dinner. and serve me and then wait on me while I do it and then only afterwards. And it, so you, the, the idea that the New Testament somehow has this enlightened position that it condemns slavery, I think, is is just incorrect and so much again i'd ask everybody to read jennifer glancy read ronald charles um even harold has said anyway but it, it um, uses slavery it uses exactly. slavery as a necessary tool because you are to be a slave to christ so how can you pamper your own slaves you are subservient to christ and your slaves are subservient to you it sets up a classist system of inequality it's undeniable in luke 17 from 7 7 to 9 
And in another parable, Jesus says, there's an unjust judge who doesn't give justice to a woman who's asking him for justice. And the only reason he gives her justice finally is because of her persistence. Now, Jesus says, if that unjust judge will do that, how much more will your heavenly father give justice to those who ask him? Which is not in any way a counter to what we said or relevant to slavery. Jesus is using an illustration of the day, an unjust judge. He's not commending unjust judges. He's not saying they're good. But I think the distinction here, Cliff, is that he's saying, which of you? In other words, he's not saying, I know you guys have slaves, but you shouldn't have that, right? I mean, he's using it. It's dependent upon it. The the rationale of the parable is, I agree with you that the New Testament isn't, like Paul isn't saying, rise up and revolt. I, I, I agree completely. The New Testament text isn't laying down legal stipulations like we see in the Pentateuch. It's a much more bottom up because they're not in power. According to the narrative of the text, uh, in, the, in the Hebrew Bible, they're coming from a top down. So I agree with that, but I, there's nothing in the biblical text that condemns, and, and, and I just, uh, sorry, James, because Philemon has come up so often, I just want to read something. Uh, however, one, one under, however one understands the situation being described in the book, we would be hard-pressed to see the book, this is Philemon, as representing an overarching declaration on the institution of slavery. Loza writes concerning this view, quote, for good reasons, this view, that it's condemning slavery, has found no acceptance and today is no longer held by anyone. The letter to Philemon is neither the disguise of a general idea nor the promulgation of a generally valid rule about the question of slavery. Well, whoever wrote that's blowing smoke. Well, they're not. They're, they're New Testament scholars. Frederick so. Douglass, obviously Frederick Douglass, a slave, came to right. faith in Christ and, and pointed that's out completely irrelevant. Very right. clearly. Right. I mean, you're, you're fighting consensus Christianity in America, here, Christianity interpreted by white slaveholders is not fair to the text. Next and Frederick Douglass refused to allow neither white Paul Christian nor Frederick Douglass him are in any right. way Neither Paul nor Frederick Douglass are in any way corrective to to Exodus 21. The original Super Chat was challenging Cliff, so I do have to give him the last word, otherwise it's kind of like I'm ganging up on him. Actually, I think that's a bullshit rule, but I'm actually okay with that rule for now. So that's what we're doing. (laughs) Zach, Zach, uh, Cliff, I'll give you a chance to respond if you want. Otherwise, we're going to go to the next one, which is from Zach. Well, look, I mean, if we're going to stick with Luke, Josh said Luke 17. I mean, Luke 4, quoting the book of Isaiah, let's set the captive free. Or, for example, let's just look as a doctor. Luke is a doctor for, I mean, in general, he's a Gentile, somehow giving this incredible place of power to even write the book. I mean, the Jews are allowing this. So it, it's completely desecrating racism to begin with. And there is language of setting the captive free. Next up, thanks for your questions. Zach says, Cliff, if you found out God didn't exist, would you still be against slavery? If I find out that God didn't exist, I'd be a total moral relativist because I'd have to acknowledge that right and wrong are created by me. And therefore, whatever I choose on a particular day, I'll hold to. And if one day I think slavery is good, I'll support it. And if not the day I feel slavery is not good, I won't support it. And that's why I'm better than you. Next up. Well, I'm glad we straightened that out, Matt. (laughs) It's a fact. Let's see. Uh, Okay. Christian Holmes. Okay. Looking for serious questions, and well, I guess that at least that makes this quicker. We can get all the questions in. Uh, Jesse Shodell says, an all-knowing God should have known it was immoral, regardless of social norms. That's absolutely correct. The all-knowing God knows right from Genesis through Revelation that slavery and racism are wrong. 
And it's a shame he didn't say so and said the opposite. Or inspired the opposite. It's not a shame that he gave us a free will. And I we know don't that have free will. Responsibility. We don't have we free will have in this sense will, that you do. We can all choose to follow our culture, different instincts that vie for control of our thinking and our motives and our ambitions. But yeah, he chose to give us a free will because he chose to create us in a way that we can love him and love demands a free choice. Otherwise, it's not love. Gotcha. Next one up. Uh, Astro Hutchins, thanks for your positive feedback. Said, good show. This is a blast. Appreciate that. And folks, if you've enjoyed it, let us know. We definitely pay attention to the likes on videos. It lets us know what topics and which matchups we can have in the future. And so hit that like if you enjoyed tonight's debate. Blue Heron, thanks. For, well, I guess it's a question. So they say, do any of the well-vetted interlocutors support Medicare for all health care insurance? Not my feeling. Oh. Yes, I generally favor Medicare for all, but I'm not going to pretend to understand it or know how to pay for it or any of the other stuff because that's not my remotely my field. So, and and not relevant to this debate. But minimum wage might be. Because if the minimum wage is zero, I'd say you're a slave. That includes prisoners then. <laughs> no, it doesn't. Prisoners get paid. You should look into that. Below the minimum wage. Way below the minimum True, wage. True, but they're also not slaves owned by people. They have so many freedoms taken away from them, it's incredible. And but I mean, I, I, do you think that's problem, not just? The, the problem with that is that if you start taking those Venn diagrams and pushing them together and saying that they all connect, then in the Old Testament, you'd have to argue that women are slaves and children are slaves, right? Just all women and children. And of course, they're not. They don't fit that definition but they have a lot of similarities. They're under the paterfamilias right there. But anyway. Universal health care. Are you guys, the last three of you, yes or no? Yes. I have no comment. It's not my field. I don't comment on things generally. No, I am very field. grateful that in my neck of the woods, uh, nobody has denied admission into a hospital to get medical care. So I'm very grateful for that. I'm very grateful for our government supporting people who can't afford health care to get it. So I'm very grateful for all that. That's all based on a biblical worldview of compassion and love being real and needing to reach out and heal the sick and just the same way Jesus did. Gotcha. We Again. most we mostly agree right there. I just want to I just want to make sure that just in case nobody else sees it, I almost completely agree with everything Cliff just said. Nice. Well, that shows you, Matt. Miracles do happen. <laughs> it's not a miracle. It's just. <laughs> Evidence and reason, but yeah. <laughs> Evidence and reason. <laughs> uh, David Velar, thanks for your question, says, no, 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 Matt 19, Matthew 19, 18, 19, 8 is denouncing the idea that it's acceptable. He's not condoning it. And they say, you're twisting it. But the thing is, I think they're actually saying this to Cliff and Stuart. Um, I can't remember what Matthew 19, 8 said. It's about it's divorce. About, yeah. Gotcha. Matthew, Matthew 19 is about divorce, but I I don't know which one of us is maybe misrepresenting it. But I will say very quickly, because I wrote this down and didn't have time at the moment. It's two quick lines. Um, I don't think divorce is immoral. I think it is, in fact, moral. I don't think polygamy is necessarily immoral, but it doesn't matter because the Bible legislates wives, plural, and concubines. So suggesting the Bible somehow opposed to multiple marriages is ridiculous, even though that changes later. But that's a change. If it was immoral, then it was immoral always. But I don't know. That's another. Well, this is showing a shift because statistically, Sunday school teachers now are looked at in a way stranger kind of way than those in polyamorous marriages. 
And so there is definitely a sexual ethic kind of flip there. The Wait, did you just say Sunday school is, is teachers and sexual ethic? All in, I because I don't know how those <laughs> two are connected. My whole point in using Matthew 19 is Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce mm -hmm. your wives because your hearts were hard. And if any of you guys take that to mean divorce is good or God contradicts himself, you are handling that text incorrectly. What Jesus is obviously saying is divorce is not God's ideal. It's not his plan. But because your hearts were hard, he permitted you to be divorced and give that certificate of divorce. And that's the same point with slavery, with governmental. But you, but you have to power. be able to make that connection. Cliff, you have to be able to make that connection. I, I don't, I don't know that you can. Well, I can't. I'm positive I can't because he says flat out, because your hearts were hard. We right? agree with you. Right, but because Cliff, people are sinful, God permits certain things to happen. One you of them is right. that is it hold on. Is it true then that it is that does that apply to beating children with wooden rods? Or beating slaves with wooden rods? No, God it doesn't say okay. you can beat children oh. with rods. Well, anyway, it it does. Spare the rod, spoil the child. And, 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 I mean, it's absolutely, it does. And that's what the Proverbs are. I mean, so many of the Proverbs are And if are your about. child is a disgrace, you're to take him before the, the people of the town and stone them to death. But spare but the rod, you, spoil the child. You, How wait you? a second. When you two guys talk like that, I feel like I'm talking to the other end of the spectrum of a hyper-conservative fundamentalist Christian who says, yeah, spare the rod, spoil the child means if you don't beat your child with a rod, you're going to spoil them. That is not what that proverb is talking about, child certainly abuse. Certainly it is. And yeah. if you interpret it, that it's as being child abuse, is. that's sad. That's, that's so dishonest. I mean, it's consensus scholarship. Yeah. I mean, it's consensus scholarship. So. No, it is I think, not. It I think you would, is. For scholarship is what that is. No, no, it's not. But I think you would, I think you would be. To do this, guys, but oh, we, my gosh. We've, gotten, we've made progress. <laughs> it's so important. Far. Alpha J says, why did God give rules for buying slaves in Leviticus 25 if he didn't condone it, Cliff and Stewart? And they said, this isn't condoning. God prohibited other things in Leviticus. God is taking a very hard-hearted people and transforming them. And it is a process. Divorce is not God's idea. Slavery was not God's idea. But God is patient with people and puts up with their wrongdoing. Now, let's, real talk, let's talk about America today. God is patient with the materialism of our culture. The fact that we have so much money and that people are starving to death today clearly contradicts what Jesus taught. God is patient with us and puts up with a lot of garbage, a lot of sin. Next up, Rebecca Borg. I wish. Yeah, go ahead. Let's see. Uh, this one is, they say, may you explain how the slaves and rapees or people who were, who were raped may have perceived actions of the masters and rapists upon them 2,000 years ago and if this was helpful to them. The Bible never says rape is good. It never says rape is helpful. Rape is a sin. It's evil. And you don't have to go any past Genesis chapter 2, where man and woman are both created in the image of God to understand that. Gotcha. Number 31, so the priests get in from... trouble, actually, for talking about taking the girls. Duke of Sahib, thank you for your question. Said, If the Bible is such a moral book, then why did it take so long for Christian societies like the antebellum South to get rid of slavery? Because human beings are sinners, and Christians are sinners just as well as non-Christians. We all are sinners. Next up. Super I would read uh, Mark Knowles, A Theological Crisis in the Civil War. Fantastic on that topic. He's a strong Christian in Notre Dame. And I'm, I'm a little... 
saddened that we didn't spend a, a good hour and a half on the New Testament because I really think whether it's Gregory of Nyssa starting early on in the first couple hundred years, then you go all the way, stretch it all the way to the Quakers. The consequence of ideas is so strong that you can't just talk about the alt-right and you can't talk about some of the Southerners in certain Southern states making these misinterpretations. You have to start to look at what is the consequence of ideas? What was really going on back then in Christ's age? What did Paul do? And then on and on down the line with the Enlightenment, et cetera, in terms of what was humanitarian and how did it become more so? And then you look at the Amish. How do they deal with things like tremendous violence, tremendous things like slavery? What are their thoughts on it? Where do they get it from? They get it from the Bible. And so just automatically outright saying the New Testament is just terrible on how it handles slaves as well as the Old Testament, and we're in 2021, let's, let's come to agreement on this. You're going to have all kinds of problems. And again, I, it's been an hour on this, but this is probably another, move quick. another I, time. I, I, so, sorry, but I have to. So I would, I would read Thomas Morris for Laws in the Antebellum South. I would read Jennifer Glancy and Ronald Charles for Slavery in the Early Church. Next up, Stupid Horror Energy says, would Cliff say a law that requires rapists to wear a condom is a moral law or regulation? No, it's totally immoral to try and protect a rapist and allow them to rape some more just because they have a condom on. That's sick. Next Should up. they always go to jail? Well, I guess that's going to be determined by the government of the land they live in. Unless, except for when the Bible says that they're to marry the person they raped, and that doesn't say anything at all about going to jail. So that's the tradition at that point. Next up, Matt Metro, thank you for your, uh, I think, compliment. Says, Dr. Josh loved your work as Two-Face in the Dark Knight. Does, doc, does Dr. Josh look like Aaron Eckhart? I, maybe. Says, had no idea of your biblical mastery as well. Keep it up. Oh, Batman. Gosh. I don't know if I have biblical mastery. That's very kind. Very, very thanks for your super sticker. And Stupid Whore Energy strikes again. She says, for Josh, bondage of Jews supposedly lasted only seven years and every 50 years. But is there evidence that sometimes these rules were not enforced? Oh, yeah. I mean, and and I think, so Jeremiah 34, Nehemiah 5, like these are the, to two passages that people kind of go to to talk about the slave laws get broken. And I think uh, Jeremiah 34 was brought up earlier. But I, I, the the question is, like, I, in the same way that what we don't want to do is look at the laws in the antebellum South uh, and, and, and then, or sorry, the, the practice of what happened in the antebellum South and the laws of the Hebrew Bible and compare those. What we need to do is compare the laws in the antebellum South and the laws of the Hebrew Bible or the practices of the, of the sinful people in the narrative and the practices of the sinful people in the antebellum South, right? We have to compare apples to apples here. And that's why I think this sort of thing is a little dangerous. I say that with my tongue, like, I was going to say firmly set in my cheek, but I like it's very dangerous. I think when you look at how lawmakers, uh, how judges in the antebellum South rationalized and wrestled with the laws for beating a slave and for keeping and maintaining a slave, because they're very similar to what we see in Exodus 21. The legal rationale is very similar. Gotcha. Jevexican 007 said, why uh, friend, I didn't understand your the second part of your question, but I will read the first part. He said, why didn't God make an 11th commandment on which two laws do the whole law stand? Hmm. Yeah, when Jesus says on these two commandments, 
you know, love the Lord thy God with all your heart, the Shema, and then love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commands hang the whole law and the prophets. I think that's what they're referring to. Gotcha. I could be wrong. I don't know who the question would be for. I guess it would be for Cliff and Stuart. Okay, so the Ten Commandments are basically specifics on what it looks like practically to love God and to love people. If I love God, I'm going to worship him. I'm not going to make an idol. I'm not going to abuse his name. I'm going to speak to him respectfully. And I'm going to set time aside to develop my relationship with God. I'll have a Sabbath. And then when it starts to honoring mom and dad and not murdering and not lying and not committing adultery and not stealing, those are specific examples of what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. So it's all based on loving God and loving people. Gotcha. And FVR Wilson, thanks for your super chat, said, Matt, notice me, senpai, and to the Christians, if you (laughs) asked Jesus for his opinion on slavery, what do you think he would say? And if he asked you for your opinion in front of God, what would you say? I'm sorry, this started off directed at me, but nothing after the first hi there sounded right. like it was for me. That, yes, definitely. So Cliff and Stuart, this, this second part, they say, and to the Christians, if you ask Jesus for his opinion on slavery, what do you think he would say? Stuart answered that by referring to Luke chapter 4. Jesus says in his first sermon, I've come to set the oppressed free. He would Pretty say, clear. He would say, listen to Paul. Gotcha. Paul writing in, in 1 Corinthians I mean, how many people do you think, Christians, probably 57 to 100 Christians max, are they going to somehow lead a revolt and undo the whole empire's take? I'm sorry, I thought we were talking about Almighty God. So this is what I tried to interrupt with earlier, but we weren't, we've got like four questions where we weren't allowed to respond at all. I think it, I think it would be, well, (laughs) I agree with Cliff on Matthew um, 19. When Jesus clearly says, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. Find me a verse where Jesus says, Moses permitted you to own the heathen that surround you because your hearts were hard. And that will be an actual connection. Josh and I agree with you about what Matthew 19 is saying with regard to Moses and divorce. You have no verse that is remotely as clear or remotely specific about slavery, which is why no verse you pointed to in opposition to slavery, even included the word slavery. And certainly the early church didn't understand it. I mean, if it let's assume for a second that the New Testament was crystal clear and that Philemon was this big statement against, uh, you know, the slavery in general. Um, the early church didn't catch that. They didn't on, catch guys, it. Guys, there are lots of things the first century church didn't catch. That's why they had the Council of Jerusalem and Acts chapter But they had 15. God, okay. right? All right. But they clearly, had God. Why didn't God catch it? Clearly they taught that slavery was wrong. And that slaves were going to be accepted in the church, not as inferior in the slightest, but as equal. And they were going to be leaders in the church, as Stuart already pointed out. Read Jennifer Glancy. Jennifer Glancy and Ronald Charles. Their second question for you, Cliff and Stuart, was, and if God asked you for your opinion, or if Jesus asked you for your opinion of slavery in front of God, what would you say? I think we probably know the answer to that. Uh, Fair. Next. Mr. Lightning 20 says, why would God, who is all-knowing, instruct laws for slavery in biblical times and not intend for these laws to be applicable today? And they say, is this a God of moral relativism? Obviously, the Bible points out that there is a degree of moral relativism. 
Paul writes in Romans chapters 13 and 14, for some of you to eat meat sacrificed to idols is not good. For others of you to eat meat sacrificed to idols is just fine. Obviously, Jesus said to the rich young ruler, sell all you have, give to the poor and come and follow me. But Zacchaeus stood up and said at this banquet with Jesus, right now I give half my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I give them back four times the amount. So there's not one standard for all followers of Christ when it comes to how to handle material possessions. So there's a great deal of moral relativism within Christianity, a great deal. But there are also some real moral absolutes. Gotcha. Tom's chair, always glad to have the old lazy boy here, says the Nets aren't going to beat Harden to near death if he doesn't shoot, but maybe they should if he does shoot. Sure. Is, Is that for Josh? Is that for me? I'm pretty sure it's for you. You're the only one that brought up sports people as if they're slaves. Matter of fact, the only other person I've hey, ever heard, true, by the way, the only other person I've ever heard suggest that NBA players are slaves it. is yeah. G-Man. So you're in really bad company. Paul Copan. Paul Copan does yeah, as well. Yeah, Paul Copan, Josh's buddy. No, so, yeah. God. so, so I'm going to go ahead and say the reason why, first of all, it could be an argument from silence. Maybe that person was actually had some type of punishment for beating that slave who ended up surviving we only have it directly stated that the person is going to have corporal punishment i know that's a stretch josh don't worry i know it's a stretch but i was going to say it anyway um obviously (laughs) eye for an eye tooth for a tooth that one's clear but i think about it too that there is that piece of whole it was wait 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 wait, wait. sorry 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 go go with that eye for an eye tooth for a tooth What, what, what are you talking about verse 26 and 27 yeah because that's not what it says. No, 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 no. I'm simply saying that if you killed a slave, you would be killed too. Right. But the, the key to that, but I think that's really important because they don't get Lex Talionis. Yeah. There is no eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth for the slave. The value is different. But the, but the, the owner who killed the slave still gets the punishment, correct? Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah, that, that's my only point. Yeah, there. yeah. Sorry. Good. No, no, no. So, so I, I think you also have to take it, and at least some scholars I've read, premeditation comes into play as well here. Absolutely. It, yeah. it, so, so that's that's my answer because yeah, if, yeah. if someone has the... not died, for example, then you have to take into consideration that this person was not, it was not premeditated yeah. one, and that two, any just judge would say, okay, th- we we've got to trust this person's word. We yeah. we got to let them off because. That's, that's, that's exactly the point. That's exactly the point of the text that you, what you just said is consensus scholarship. The, the problem is it's the same legal rationale that judges used in the antebellum South. Right. Yeah. Gotcha. And thank you very much for your question. This one comes in from standing for truth. Who says more, more just says he's going to, he's going to have a debate on evolution on his channel right after this. So <laughs> thanks for that. And Chris Gammon, thank you for yours says, I agree that the Bible doesn't command you to enslave people, but I do think it's an endorsement of the practice. Stu and Cliff, is it possible ancient peoples misinterpreted their God? They did all the time, and the Hebrew prophets called them out on it. That's a lot of... The Jews were swept into exile by first the Assyrians and then the Babylonians. Why? Because they weren't God's pets. God didn't play favorites. Can we did wrong, but then the Jews did wrong and they all got judged for it. So the Jews are his chosen people, so he is playing favorites, but also if in that no, evolution, in, in that it does mean they're favored. No, it doesn't. I favor the O Israel, read it. Um 
the, the other thing about the evolution debate that's going to happen, can we please, during that evolution debate that happens afterward, can we please teach people that there's no such thing as an evolutionary ladder? Cliff got that wrong like four times earlier, and it just wasn't relevant to debate in here. But there's no such thing as an evolutionary ladder, and his statements about evolution leading to specific moral positions is also wrong, but we can do that in another debate. Juicy. And next up, the realist MC85. Thanks for your super sticker. Appreciate the support. And Mark Reed, thank you for your question. Said, Cliff, you talked about things in the Bible that are perversions. Where does the Bible say that slavery is a perversion? Beginning at Genesis 1, 26 and 27, going through God delivering the Hebrew slaves from Egypt, going through the cross of Christ where he bleeds and dies for the penalty to pay the penalty for all of our sins, to the first century church, in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, to the letter of Philemon, to heaven including people from all nations and languages. The, prince, the abolition of slavery is right there. Next the Bible up. demolishes slavery. Next up, Chris Gammon, thanks for your support and says, I love this debate. I appreciate that, Chris Gammon. By the way, our guests are linked in the description. The guests are the lifeblood of the channel. So we want you to know they're linked in the description. We really appreciate the guests. And Minogu, thank you for your question. Said, I want to thank Stuart and Cliff. Let's see, I'm looking for the backhanded complimentary insult. Thank you, James. You sure that wasn't meant for me? Backhanded. <laughs> they say, you two are brave for defending your beliefs. I hope you accept the Bible allows slavery and that it is immoral. Well, uh, uh, if you want to respond, you can. <laughs> JT, thank you for your super chat. I said, for Cliff, is this statement true? The Bible gives directions from God to slave owners on how to treat slaves, but not a blanket order to free them. In that particular situation, in Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, yes, God has not come out in those passages and flat out said, all slavery is evil. It's nowhere in the text there. Is it anywhere else in the same Bible? Way, the same way he does not come out and say, all divorce is wrong. Same way he does not come out and say, all polygamy is wrong. Same way he does not come out and say, all child abuse is wrong. So there's no place in the, in the, in the Pentateuch where God says flat out, all slavery is wrong. It's not does, God ever, does God ever say you can't abuse your children just as long as you don't kill them? No, God never says that. He says that about slaves, according to Moses. The free piece. Don't forget, freedom is like the moral absolute today in America. Back then, freedom was generalized in a pretty crazy way. And that's why you have examples that are that are so that that was my statement earlier when it comes to we all have some type of master. If we were living back then, there was always that order, which is irrelevant to the morality. But but nice. the free question. Thanks for your question. Quality control says Stuart and Cliff Exodus 21 one says, quote, these are the laws you are to set up before them. Who said that? These are the laws you are set before them. Exodus 21 one. Yep. These are the laws you are to set before them. Right. I don't know. I've not, I've not asked that question before. It's a very good question. Um, I think that these laws were set up because everything we do has consequences. It's vital to think before acting, to consider the effects of our choices. And God wants to be 
sure that he communicates clearly what it means to progress morally, what it means to grow morally. And he's patient with us and puts up with an awful lot of our ridiculous behavior, including my ridiculous behavior. Next up, thank what, you for Wasn't your the work. question who said that? Yeah. So like the phrase. I think they were asking in Exodus 21.1, is that just Moses speaking or is that God speaking? And I answered it as clearly as I could, which was, I don't know. I've not studied that verse yet, so I'm not sure. Okay. And then I went on to point out that be it God saying it or just Moses saying it, it's another example as the laws unfold of God's patience with sinful people. Good, good, good for God. Respectful debates. Thank you for your super chat. Said, how do you explain Numbers 31, 35, where soldiers capture 32,000 virgins with 32 of them being a tax for the Lord? What does God do with these virgins? Do they become sexual slaves? You have to read Numbers chapter 25 because Numbers 31 is coming out of the incident in Numbers 25. And what happens there is adult women are used to seduce the Jewish men who participate in sexual immorality and then in idolatry, and it leads the nation of Israel astray. In, X, in Numbers 31, God is not calling for the rape of virgin girls. But the reason that the virgin girls are given a special license is, and protection is, because a virgin girl was usually 12 years old or younger. Usually girls were not virgins 13 years of age and older. And so those women who had led Israel into sexual morality and into idolatry were judged. But those younger girls were not judged. And therefore, the Jewish people are accepting the younger girls in not to be raped, not that they have to have sex with anybody, but they're being accepted into the Jewish community to be protected, to be provided for. And to conclude that because they're virgins, therefore they're used to be raped is such a twisting, such an addition to that text, it's scary. Gotcha. Thank you very much for your they're, they're, question. They're, they're, they're plunder, though. I mean, I think that's critical. They're listed along as plunder, amongst the other things. And so what does that mean, Josh? They are property. Yeah, I mean, they're, what does they're that taking... Mean, well, it means I mean, that they are subject to being married off. That it means that their consent is no longer required. That they are not autonomous constructs running their own life. They as are, married off, it was tremendously humanitarian, though. How it was oh done. my gosh! So, so hold on. You guys are just going to talk about how wonderful the Jews were because after there. they slaughtered everybody, if they took the young girls from themselves, but they didn't actually you rape them. If you're going ridiculous. to do that, if you're going to do that, then you have to say something equivalent to, "Well, look, if somebody came in here and murdered me." And 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 took my wife and kids and then burned my house down. Hey, at least they took them out. That was humane. They didn't let them die here in the fire and they didn't murder them. They took them out. Look, they took care of them for 25 years. They kept them in the house, gave them a place to eat. Nobody would do that, right? Nobody would nobody would make that argument that that's humane. And that's that's what you're doing. I mean, that's that's how that's coming across to me. Meanwhile, they killed well, all the little boys. That, Josh, they killed all the little boys under 12. We're not killed all the little boys under 12. People who behave that way. They that's, killed all the little boys under 12. You're missing the whole point, 12. Josh, of what we would make it. And that's not fair to you to do that. That's never been our point, that that was the ideal, that that was the humane thing to do. Never well, once never did we say that. But that's what he, but that's, it's, I think that's what you did, Stuart, and that what you said, said that that was the, the humane ideal. thing to do. Gabriel I'm sorry Kay. that you can't understand that something may not be the ideal and might still be immoral. Sorry. If I miss, if, if I misunderstood you, I'm sorry. That's, that, that's my fault. If I misunderstood. 
I mean, Gabriel K, thanks for your super chat. Said, why is sin wrong if God created it? Would any of you punish a being you created with bugs, or would you fix your creation? God didn't create sin. God gave us beautiful gifts like a tongue and speech. And instead of encouraging people and loving people and respecting people the way God created us to, we've used our language, our speech, our tongue to manipulate, to deceive, to lie, to cut people down. So sin is not very creative. Sin is simply taking the good gifts that God has given us and using them for a perverted purpose. That's true for sex, be it rape. It's true for slavery, as opposed to really respecting someone and paying them a fair wage, instead enslaving them. That's a perversion of God's good creation. That's what next, sin is. Next up, Jordo Stanzinich says, thanks, Matt and Josh, for standing up for basic rights. Next up, YouTube Punk says, what is Cliff's definition of condone? Also, uh, what is moral? So we'll give you, if you want to define each of those words, Cliff. Condone. And moral. And moral. Condone <laughs> means to be supportive of. And to be moral means to understand that there's a difference between right and wrong and to use your free will to choose that which is right and to follow your conscience and do and choose that which is right. Gotcha. They also, I don't understand the context, but they, in this context, they say also for God to forbid slavery or allow it. Why is God beholden to ancient morals? Let's focus on that mm -hmm. last question. If you would grant that God is beholden to ancient morals. I don't know why someone would conclude that God is beholden to ancient morals. God is not beholden to American morals or Soviet Union morals or Chinese morals. God is the eternal being whose character is good, and it's his good character that defines what is right and what is wrong. There was no good before God. There's no evil before God because God is eternal. Thanks so that's question. why this... Go ahead. Sorry to interrupt you. Evot, um, thanks for your question, said, what's or wasn't the context in the Old Testament God himself? You mean in terms of Jesus becoming the slave in Philippians 2? Is that pointing to? Is that what they mean? I don't know. We're I'm guessing that's probably the next one because I don't understand it. Bagos Spanners, thank you for your question, said, if God said sent Cliff back in time and commanded him to kill the Amalekites, would he do it? And if not, why not? That's very similar to asking, and if I was born in Iran, would I be a Muslim? I don't have the faintest idea how to answer a question like that because I wasn't born in Iran. I was born in New York City. So okay. I, if, if for me to go back in time is not an option. I don't know what I would believe or do if I had been born 3,000 years ago. It'd be it's preposterous just, for me to presume. It's just a hypothetical. It's asking, you know, it's put put yourself in that. So I'm getting ready to do a video on on the on the slaughter of the Amalekites and whether or not it was moral. Possibly the same person asked me ask you this question. I'm just I'm just baffled at how we're ha sitting here having a discussion. When when we talk about specifics, you go to general and how someone can be asked a question about Numbers 31 and immediately say, "Oh, you have to understand Numbers 25, 25." But you've been preaching for 40 years. You came to a debate on on slavery and morality, and you didn't hadn't studied Exodus 21, 1, the very first verse in the chapter that's most relevant to this. It's it seems, and I'm not it, it feels like we're talking about specifics and you just deflect to generalities over and over. And I'm I'm not saying you're dishonest or anything else. I'm just it's I don't know how you can expect 
to overcome specific instructions with general feelings. Well, I'm rather amazed at how many people interpret the Bible in an overly literalistic way. Mm -hmm. I got to debate Bart Ehrman uh, down at UNC Chapel Hill. Mm -hmm. And before Bart and I had our debate, we had dinner together. And during dinner, he, he looked across the table at me and said, Cliff, I used to be a more conservative Christian than you are. I said, really, Bart, tell me about it. He said, oh, I went to Moody Bible College. I went to Wheaton College. I used to be a more conservative Christian than you. And I found that really interesting because during the debate, he took such a wooden approach to interpreting the scripture. I felt like I was talking to a hyper-conservative fundamentalist Christian who had just swapped to the other end of the spectrum. Now he was demanding a specificity. See, what he was telling me was, Cliff, because there are between 200 and 400,000 manuscript errors in the 25,000 manuscripts that we have in the New Testament, therefore the Bible is not inerrant. Therefore, I cannot accept it. That is sad. That is He's really correct. sad. The Bible has never, ever claimed to have specifically precise transmission of 25,000 manuscripts of the Bible. That is such a ludicrous idea. It's, it's scary. And it might have Unless been you're a hyper-fundamentalist Christian or a liberal who's trying to twist the Bible and make it look stupid. Must, I think, must I, I'm, I'm sorry, okay. James. I, sorry. I, I think part of the issue here is that, I, I mentioned this earlier, it does seem like sometimes that you guys kind of have a foot in both both hermeneutical approaches. And on the one hand, you'll say things like the Canaanites were really, really wicked when like, we don't have evidence of that. But the biblical narrative says that they were. And so you, you kind of go with the biblical narrative. But then it seems like you say, well, Moses, you know, gives these commands. Well, we don't know that these were legislative. Well, that's that's sort of looking at it, you know, from a more historical critical standpoint. So I think that's where the confusion is. So be it. Next up. And Ben C says, if Stuart and Cliff were to ascribe the laws that a nation should abide by, would they copy what the Bible writes about slavery or change it? So, you know, if you guys could make your own country, would you copy the Bible's, what the Bible writes about slavery, or would you change it? Well, see, this gets kind of, kind of back to Matt's last point in terms of the specifics of it and the feelings. And then Josh's point on the one foot in the door and the one foot out the door. See, I, I think the heavy lifting on the Christian's part when it comes to a debate like this, it becomes really exegeting every single verse of the Old Testament. And that's okay. That can be called for and demanded of. But then I would take that question that the listener just asked, and I would ask that eventually to a Matt and Josh in the sense of, okay, in an ancient Near Eastern context, what would it look like for God to have the right types of laws, the right types of commands, or does he need to wipe out A&E altogether and just start over? Should he have created civilizations and had his hands just in every single pool in such a way where we didn't even have to talk about slavery? We didn't have to talk about polygamy. We didn't have to talk about any any type of evil. I just and find so it preposterous. That, that's the frustration for me where it's, you know, it, if the Christian is going to be lifting up these heavy rocks, at what point is the atheist going to step in and lift just kind of a little stone? No, well, no, 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 no. Because this is, this oh, yes, is yes, 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 yes. That was a very good point Stuart just made. No, it's it not. And I'm going to explain to you why it's not. If you like right I'm going to explain to you why it's not. <laughs> but you won't shut up. <laughs> I'm kidding. I want to hear. I want to hear your. I want to hear the Dilahante wisdom. Bring it in. 
you are acting as if the atheists are asking for God to dip in and micromanage every little thing. And that's, that is not that, that you're, you're waving your hands, but no, no, I'm not saying don't, don't, that's not in a straw man, steel man. That's not what I'm saying. (laughs) Josh, did you think it was fair what I was getting at or no? Was it just totally unfair? I, I think that the question, what's behind and Matt, correct me if I'm wrong, Again, I'm not an ethicist, but what's behind our our overall point is that theologically speaking, the God that is so often described is the omni-God, right? Omnibenevolent, omniscient, omnipotent. Um, And in that sense, this deity who makes very strong commands, both in the Old and the New Testament, um, doesn't have what we would look back and say the consistency to say slavery is immoral. And that seems, uh, I don't know, uh, counterintuitive, maybe, uh, uh, why am I blanking on the word? Right, right. Uh, What's the, uh, Matt, help me. What's the logical term? Why am I blanking on the logical term of conflicting? Um, I don't know how to help that. I don't think I have anything else to say tonight because Stuart sat there and suggested, and and we can rewind it and look at the words, that it's almost like the atheists are like, how much should God be involved in all this? And what we're saying is not, we we think that God should have been involved in micromanaging or anything else. I think at a minimum, I'm expecting the bare minimum, and that is for a God to not say, hey, it's okay to own people's property, when a God should say, it is not okay to own people's property. I'm asking for the bare minimum of humanity, which does not even exist at all in the Bible, and you're pretending as if I'm asking God to be involved in all these little things and make all these laws and all that. No, I'm just asking you not to get it completely backward. And all I was asking was just for a little bit of heavy lifting from you. And so that was my only point. I don't have to That's do heavy fair. lifting if, I, if I've raised an ethical objection and you come back with a straw man. There's no heavy lifting to do. Slavery is immoral. What the Bible advocates is immoral. Who says? I do. I answered why? that the last time you asked. Okay, and that's Who says reason. and why? I say why because it is against the things that we know and understand to be best for individual humans and humanity. We have learned that slavery is not good for the slaves. Slavery is not good for the slave owners. Slavery is not good for the society. We know this from the evidence about what makes a better society and a worse society. But you said if it does benefit society, though, Matt said if it benefits society. How neat, Stuart, that you go to a fictional thing that I already said wasn't possible. So what we have here (laughs) is I want to let everybody know I pinned it twice in the chat. We can't read any more questions other than what have already come in that I have on the list here. We're going to keep moving. Thank you for your question. This one coming in from Robots Everywhere says, question if the rapture and tribulation happen like in Christian fiction, but humanity wins and defeats both Jesus and the Antichrist what do I, can i, I just say as an atheist that's the stupidest question i've ever heard and i don't think that stewart and cliff should dignify it with a response next up <laughs> all right d rabbits thanks for your question says okay stewart and cliff how about deuteronomy twenty one eighteen? if we need the bible to argue the bible have you stoned any kids lately no that's not the point of what i was trying to say next a lot up, of scholars who are secular, like the Tom Hollands of the world, who are getting a lot of fame right now, they're the ones who make that type of point. 
where they'll step in and they'll say, if you have this tremendous anger and rage towards something like the stoning of an innocent child, then that came from a Judeo-Christian value. If you go back to earlier civilizations, especially if you look at, say, the Roman Empire, you know, Josh and Matt would say uh, differ if you go earlier. But what the whole point of all these authors, what they're trying to say is the idea of us being created in the image of God and having inestimable worth and value. The idea of God actually dying for his enemies, dying for us and debasing himself like that, giving us that type of worth. That is why you look at an individual who is getting stoned to death and you say that is really wrong. So that's what these secular atheist writers. Now, you can disagree with them. I'm just simply saying what they're saying. Next, thanks for your question. This one's from Louis Mazzoli. says, Matt, if you believe in the veracity of the Old Testament slavery, why don't you believe in the account of the veracity of the resurrection of Christ? I, I never said I believe in the veracity of slavery. There, there are things in the Old Testament that I have no reason to think ever actually occurred. And when I look at Exodus 21, um, I think it is uh, a bunch of uh, writings about people trying to do the best they can with the limited knowledge that they have. But it doesn't mean that I'm in any way agreeing that this like, I don't have any reason to think that Moses actually existed other than he's attributed as an author of part of the Pentateuch. But I'm not also saying Moses didn't exist. Um, so when you ask me, why do I accept the veracity of Exodus 21, but not other things? I don't. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry this is confusing for people, but I don't believe the Bible. Um, there are things in there that are true, and there are things in there that are good. But that when I'm objecting to something, I'm not I'm talking about their worldview, not mine. Gotcha. Andrew Handelsman, thanks for your support, says, let's keep hitting that like button, everybody. Appreciate that. Jay Mixon, thanks, says, great book, Dr. Josh. I purchased it prior to this debate. Very enlightening and informative. Got a fan out there. Fayon, there it is. <laughs> Thank you very much, Fayon. Oh, you got both of you, you got a copy. That, uh, Fayon says, for the Christians, is clothing a less important issue than slavery? If so, how is a law about mixing cloth types included when slavery is not? Oh, can I guess? Because I think I can say what Cliff would agree with. People's hearts were not hardened about fabrics in the way that they were hardened about slavery. No, Matt, the miracle did not occur. We don't agree. All right, I tried. Instead, instead go to the Apostle Paul and realize that Paul said, greet one another with a holy kiss. I can tell you, I can promise you, I don't go around kissing people in church, kissing guys. I just don't do it. So you have to, it's, it's a very <laughs> difficult question. It's a question of what is culturally relative in the Bible and what is not. And obviously greeting one another with a holy kiss is viewed as culturally relative by the vast majority of followers of Christ in the United States. They don't go around greeting each other with a holy kiss. And so, yes, there were certain laws in Leviticus that applied simply to that time. For instance, not cutting your sideburns and not cutting yourself. Well, when you study what Elijah did in his competition on Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal, how did they get God's attention? By cutting themselves and letting the blood flow. And so all of a sudden that passage in Leviticus makes a great deal of sense. God says, you don't need to cut yourself and have the blood flow in order to get my attention. Next up. Joseph I shouldn't Fontaine. have guessed. I, I apologize. I shouldn't have guessed. I should have known it would be a sermon that didn't actually address the question at all. Joseph, left hand, thank you for your question. Said, question for Cliff, if you believe abusing children is wrong, why does your God require rebellious children to be beaten to death 
with rocks in Deuteronomy 21 to purge the evil from Israel. The casuistic law where it's that was not definitively supposed to be done. It was actually more so to put them in fear of it being done. Robots Is fear a good thing? Question. Is terrorism a good thing? Fear is hey, a great do this thing. or I will shoot you. Do this or I will stone you. Is that a fear good way? Fear can be a great motive. Oh, I mean, it, it can depends. be a great motivator, but is it a moral motivator? It depends. In the Bible, it's used in two different ways. Fear is used as awe and then also fear as in scared. Yeah. So you're right. It's a, it's a hard question, but spanking is, that, that's another debate. I mean. No, it's not. Spanking, spanking is, is immoral, but we can talk about it. <laughs> That sounds like an interesting debate. Okay, Andrew Handelsman says, uh, let's get to 600 likes. Thanks for that, Andrew. Appreciate your support. Then we have a question. This one coming in from Robots Everywhere again says, mine is a serious question. Again, if God exists and is real and is defeated militarily, let's say during the tribulation, what will any of you do? This is the same stupid question I shrugged off a while ago. (laughs) Where So first of all, if you're an atheist out there and this is what you think is a good question to challenge Christians, please stop. You're an idiot and you're making it harder for the rest of us <laughs> because you don't understand Christianity. If you think that God's going to come down and be destroyed by the might of the United States military. I mean, you're just nuts. That's not. Uh, sorry. Next, next up, Jake Forty. <laughs> Thank you for your question says, if your defense against lack of condemnation of slavery is free will, then you must agree that we in part create our own morality. We have the quote unquote free will to follow the Bible and own slaves or not. Yeah, we definitely have free will to choose what we want to do with our lives. The problem is there are consequences to all of our decisions. And if we want to enslave others, we will be judged by God for that. And we are in desperate need of God's grace, God's forgiveness, if we have come close to enslaving anybody. Next up, thank you for your question. This one comes in from Stupid Whore Energy Strikes Again, says, can Josh turn to his right and Matt turn to his left? Eh, never mind. And then the uh, <laughs> OCD, <laughs> it's like uh, she said, and, and pucker up. It's a, OCD Tracy says, longtime watcher, first time commenter, just wanted to say, keep up the good work. Love this show tonight. Great guests and topic. Thanks, OCD Tracy. And our guests are linked in the description. So we do appreciate them. And thank you, OCD Tracy. Zirafa, thank you for your question. Said, why did God wait over 2,500 years to tell us that slavery is, quote, not ideal? Could he not prevent the Hebrews' hearts from hardening in the first place? God does not prevent people from choosing to harden their hearts. You know, often it's said, Well, it says in Exodus that the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. What is ignored is nine times we read Pharaoh hardened his heart. So, yes, God is at work, but he still respects our free will, including Pharaoh's free will to harden his own heart. Until he decides to violate Pharaoh's free will and harden it for him, which he did at least once. Which means you and I can get to a point in our life where we've played so many games with God that we become hardened to God. And God is not influencing us. We have pushed him away seared consistently conscience. enough. A seared conscience would be an example. But there's many things, James, that I wish God would have would have done that he never did. I mean, it's, it, it gets back to the whole descriptive prescriptive. We talked about there's many descriptive things in the Old Testament that are not prescriptive. And then there are many descriptive things. Like, I'm a big-time animal lover. Why did God have to set up the system in such a way where my cat was eaten by a coyote? We have a lot of coyotes here. 
I, I mean, there, there's many different ways. I mean, you can go back to the very beginning of time in terms of, I, I have an issue that the Bible does not speak to in terms of animal cruelty. And I wish it did. I wish God gave clear cut path laws about it. Gotcha. And thank you very much for your question. This one coming in from, by the way, folks, we, a couple of quick things that I forgot to mention at the start, we're on podcasts. So if you can't find us on your favorite podcast, let us know. And also if you're listening via podcast right now, we have also started to put the links of our guest in the podcast description so you can reach them there as easily as well. David Austin, thanks for your question, said, am I not a good follower of God because man's law prevents me from owning slaves as promoted as it is in the Bible? I wish I continue. I wish to continue being a law abiding citizen and therefore not owning slaves. So am I going to hell for this? Bible does not promote slavery, divorce, polygamy. The Bible does not promote promote any specific government or economic platform. So be careful. Just love God, love people, ask God for wisdom to make morally responsible decisions. Gotcha. And thank you for your uh, question. Rad Ames Odd says, since many modern atheists don't believe in objective morality, then by their own standards, wouldn't practices be subject to the time in which the events occurred? If you were a moral relativist where you actually, so moral relativism has a very specific understanding within ethical philosophy. And that is moral relativism is when a culture defines that which is moral. Which means if a culture says, hey, female genital mutilation is fine, then all of a sudden that becomes true, that that is moral. Uh, I'm not a moral relativist. I've spoken against it many times. It's fundamentally different from situational ethics. It's fundamentally different from the facts about the situation and dictate whether or not something's moral. Like if I'm, if uh, during Katrina, when people were stealing loaves of bread from businesses, they were stealing things that were not theirs, but they needed them to live and they were going to go to a waste anyway. And so you could make an argument that what they were doing was the most moral action, just like, you know, the, the old example of somebody has a heart attack on, on the street or, or, or succumbs to, to some illness and the pharmacy, you're, it's right in front of the pharmacy, the pharmacy closed, you can break the window uh, and you end up paying for it and everything else because the most moral act you can take at that time is to help that person. Well, he is like, okay, so the only reason I just smiled is because of what someone said in the chat. But, uh, so it wasn't in response to you, Matt. And, uh, this one comes in from MK, MIK, says, on the marrying of your rapist issue, is marrying your rapist really that great of a solution even at that time in the ancient Near East? It seems toxic or traumatizing. From the scholars that I've heard from, and Josh might disagree with this, the unequivocal answer is yes. You want to enter a marital covenant, even though it seems just atrocious to us, but you want to in terms of getting resources met, in terms of product protection and other reasons. Yeah, I agree. I mean, that's what they considered to be moral. That's what they considered valued. Um, we look back at that and say that's atrocious, and I think it is, um, but because because they had set up value the way that they had in that closed system. That's what was most beneficial to the woman from their viewpoint. Gotcha. And thank you very much. Appreciate your question. This one coming in from Ivana I Ivy. I think it's pronounced. Forgive me if I 
mispronounced, said, God knows all and sees all. Isn't it the case then that God is complicit in human sin? No, because it's possible for an all-powerful God to choose to partially limit his power by giving us a free will. If I smack Stuart in the face and say, hey, guys, God made me do it, I'm a con artist. God gave me a hand and a free will. I choose whether to respect and love him or to slap him. It's not God's responsibility for what I choose to do with the hand he's blessed me with. So when, the Israelites, when the Israelites went to go kill all the Amalekites because God told them to, would it have been okay for them to say God made us do it? Would it be okay for the Assyrians and Babylonians when they came in and swept the Israelites into captivity? Would it have been all right for them to say God made me do it? I, I asked the question. I asked another question. Yes, I'm aware that happens frequently yeah, in order to avoid the question, <laughs> because I'm asking about your Bible. Uh, I, uh, my view is that uh, I don't think they had a God that was telling them to do that. But if they did, in fact, believe that they were doing this because God told them to, then saying God told us to invade you would be correct. And I didn't even think this would be remotely controversial. If God says, go and kill these people, and they go and kill these people, how could you ever say, ah, well, God didn't make me do that. God didn't instruct me to do that. I just did it on my own. When God tells all of us to do something, when we have a free will, we can choose to obey him or not obey him. And when it comes to God using the Israelites to judge people because they threw their children into the fire in worship of Moloch, and he chooses to, to judge people for crimes of humanity, I understand. I would so, argue that, that is moral. So I'm going to, because it's been, it's come up a couple of times. So read Heath Durrell's book on child sacrifice published in 2016. He's up at Princeton. Um, but like this, this idea that the, the, the Canaanites, you know, in the, in the like 15th century or the 16th century or something had these brazen altars that had arms sticking out there melting, you know, it's, it's highly debated whether Mem Lamed Kaf, this word that everybody's taking as Molech is an actual deity. If you read the, the Punic evidence from like the 7th, 6th, and 5th century, you see there's a Malk sacrifice. It's a type of sacrifice. And what Durrell argues, and I think most people would agree with, is that these the Israelites were doing this to Yahweh. You're arguing, right, Josh, that child sacrifice did not occur? Is that what you're saying? No, 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 no. But it, it, right, it occurred. Right. So we have very limited evidence for it. Um, the Phoenicians. So what's your point? Did it occur or not? Well, the Phoenicians did it in Carthage. That's a way of evidence of okay. in Carthage. Right. Okay. So it may have occurred on the Phoenician coast. We don't have really good evidence for that. But this is all evidence from the first millennium. So it's not from, again, if you're taking the hermeneutical approach following the narrative, it's not happening for 400 years during, you know, the second millennium. We don't have evidence for that, right? So you're just going with the narrative text uh, of the Bible. And that's why, again, this, 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 this is why it's a little confusing to me. Must, it, must, uh... This avoided the question. If the Jews had not killed the people that they think, thought God wanted them to kill, would they have been punished? I don't have the faintest idea. Bullshit. Just because I do something. It's in the Bible. Every time they didn't do what God wanted, God's they got punished. Punish right away. Every time they didn't do what God wanted, they got punished. It's in the, it's over and over and over again. It's ridiculous to say you don't know. Well, then read the book of Job. Okay, the basic well, mistake that Job's counselors made was to make a one-to-one -one correspondence between sin and suffering. 
And one of the main points of Job is, no, there is not a one-to-one correspondence between sin and suffering. Job did I, not suffer because he'd done something sinful. Just read Job. I, right, but I think his point is more Deuteronomy 28, Leviticus 26, you know, this idea that do good, I will bless you, do bad, I will curse you, and this is what we see uh that they that these courses of curses come upon the nation of Israel. I think that's Matt's point. That the, yeah. Again, from the standpoint of the narrative, this is how it worked. Do right. good. No, not bless one you. to one. Things and curses. It's called. Abs- not I mean, one to that's one. Exa- but that's exactly what Leviticus twenty six, Deuteronomy twenty eight, are saying. That's why you have to, have to interpret it more fairly. Thank you for saying that I don't interpret thoroughly. Said, well, you said the same to me, Josh. Come on, let's be honest. But Josh is right. Good. That's your opinion, Matt. It uh, is. And Josh has communicated his opinion clearly, and he's ever ever right to do that. I respect him for it. And we and can talk about it over dinner time. sometime, too. Yeah. That sounds nice. And Evot, thank you for your question. This is uh, the last one I think we have. So thank you guys for your questions. Thank you, thank you guys to the debaters, you guys being uh, so hardy and sticking with us. We're going, uh, we've passed, uh, would that be so six, seven, yeah, three hours. we've uh, passed yeah, our three hours. Three. That's At this uh, point, we should time. just like wave, everybody wave a white flag, plan a dinner after the pandemic's over and talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> that would be really Good idea, fun. Matt. <laughs> this one, have uh, one or two. Let's see. Go bad. So this is the last one. And they, they just wanted to clarify their earlier super chat. And so sorry, folks. I know that there are other questions that have come in. Please forgive me. I'm so sorry that we did not get to read those. But hopefully you saw at the, the top of the chat, I pinned a comment that said we we can't take any more questions. Evot though said, I meant to ask, wasn't the context in the Old Testament God? In in particular, saying Cliff, you had mentioned you know the context of the Old Testament, and he says he God was in control of the social context during the Old Testament, and that includes slavery. God is ultimately in control, but he has limited his power by giving us a free will. And human history is a record of how at times we human beings have done a good job, used our free wills responsibly, and at other times perverted the gift of free will and done atrocious evil. So I cannot blame God for the wrong that I do. I am responsible. Why? Because I've got a free will. Gotcha. And thank you very much. Want to say, folks, few things. One, our guests are linked in the description, and that includes if you're listening to us via podcast right now. And we really do appreciate them. We really do appreciate all your questions. We hope you feel welcome, whether you be Christian, atheist, you name it, folks. We really do appreciate you hanging out here. And we are, as mentioned, very excited for that debate coming up next month with Pastor Doug L- Douglas Wilson and atheist professor Dr. Ben Burgess, as they will be debating the controversial topic is atheism immoral? So that is a new topic we've never had. And so be sure to tune in for that. We'll hopefully see you there and hit that subscribe button if you want a reminder. So thank you, though, Matt and Dr. Josh and Stuart and Cliff for your perseverance in hanging with us this whole time. Thank you all. I, I enjoyed it. I, I still like everybody. I thought it was a good discussion. So thanks for having me. Oh, we love you guys. We love you so guys. appreciate that. And we're convinced that God great. loves you also. Love all you guys and I love everybody in the chat. Thank you guys. We appreciate it. We hope you have a great night. Keep sifting out the reasonable from the unreasonable. I'll be back with a post-credit scene on upcoming debates in a few moments, folks. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. 
Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.